For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. World according to Jim Mars. Get ready for him next on Coast to Coast. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. We're calling with you, Jim Mars, with us for a couple hours. Award-winning journalist, one of our favorite guests, has more than 30 years' experience with several Texas newspapers. Back in 1999, he began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level UFO courses in the nation, had a number of books published, including, of course, Alien Agenda, Population Control, or Occulted History as well. And we're going to talk with Jim about a lot of things tonight, but we're going to start with an incredible case of a crashed something in 1897 in Aurora, Texas. Hey, Jim, welcome back. Hi, George. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And looks like we're going to run into each other here before long because I believe you're going to be at contact in the desert. I believe you're going to be at UFOs within reach at uh, Big Bear Lake, right? Absolutely. And I understand that you and I may be in Dallas uh, doing something. Oh, later on this year, yeah. We, we'll keep that under our hats because we may have some real stuff to talk about as that gets closer. There's no question about that. Let's talk a little. we got lots to talk with you about tonight, Jim, but let's talk about this 1897 case in Aurora, Texas. Why does this case continue to really hit the headlines in the UFO community? Well, I'll tell you why, because number one, all through the years, is I, and actually I go back to, I could prove it because I, wrote, I drew a uh, watercolor about a UFO incident that happened in Loveland, Texas, and uh, I know I've still got that. I found it, so I know that I've been uh, actively investigating, looking, and studying about UFOs since at least that incident. I went back to check on that. That was like 1957. Okay, so I've been at it a pretty good while. Um, but all through that time, you know, it's always been well. They're they're just uh, misidentified aircraft, or they're secret government test craft, or you know. And, of course, all that is reasonable. That's a reasonable explanation. So I always thought, wouldn't it be great if we had an incident uh, of a well-documented incident of a UFO that happened before there was any man-made uh, craft in the air? And that is Aurora, Texas, which I consider the smoking gun of the UFO issue. Because this was an incident that happened on April the 19th, 1896, this was six years before the Wright brothers flew. Uh, and also, uh, they flew in December of uh, 1903. And it was also in 1903 that there was the first recorded uh, balloon flight, powered balloon flight. Uh, of course, George, I'm sure you know that, you know, they've had balloons around for a long time. They had them in the war between the states, and they'd, but they were on, they were on a line, they, on a rope. They'd 
just winch them up and they'd hang there and they use them for observation. So the first real powered balloon flight that moved around was the California era and that lifted off again in 1903. So here's a case that happened six years before there was anything man-made in the air. Uh, and then what's amazing is, is that it fits into the context of what's known as the Great Airship Mystery of 1896-97. And basically what that was about was that uh, starting about, oh, the summer of 1896, this big cigar-shaped object was uh, sighted over San, uh, Sacramento, California. And then it moved north, uh, almost to Seattle was seen. Then it was reported traveling across the northern part of the United States. I think it got as far east as Chicago, all through the latter part of 1896 and into 97. It was seen coming down to the Midwest, various places. And then uh, in April, it, it arrived in Texas, was sighted in several places here. And then, of course, on April the 19th, uh, it was reported crashed in the little hamlet of uh, Aurora, Texas, which is about 20 miles northwest of Fort Worth. Uh, the Dallas papers uh, carried the story, uh, and it's really interesting because it said uh, that uh, Aurora, Texas, about 6 o'clock this morning, the early rises of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship, which has been sailing through the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer the earth than ever before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order because it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour. Hmm. And, yeah, let me stop right there. <laughs> Airspeed is like 80 or 90 miles an hour. If you're in an airplane or any kind of flying craft, if you're not going about between 75 and 85, you're not going to be able to stay in the air. So this is strange right there said it sailed directly over the public square and when it reached the north part of the town collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill water tank and destroying the judge's flower garden. Now here's the clincher. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show he was not an inhabitant of this world. Whoa. Uh, exactly. And then they buried him in some graveyard, right? Yes, they were buried him in the Aurora Cemetery, which is still there today. It's a very old cemetery. It was uh, began uh, about 1861, right about the time that the war began. <clears throat> and there is a Texas State historical marker on the front of this uh, cemetery uh, talking about the spaceman that uh, w was buried there. Now, George... I got on this story back in the early 70s, and it was really fascinating to me uh, because we uh, I wrote some stories for the paper. Others did. Uh, my counterpart with the now-defunct Dallas Times-Herald was a man named Bill Case. And um, we wrote about it, and we, we said, well, you know, why don't they just exhume the grave, and we'll know for sure what's there, right? That would be easy, except somebody did exhume it and stole it. <laughs> well, no, they couldn't exhume. We couldn't get it exhumed. We all wrote stories and said there ought to be an exhumation, and then the Cemetery Association got up in arms and they hired a lawyer and they said, no, we're going to, you know, sue anyone who tries to dig up the graveyard because we don't want that. Blah blah. Okay, well, it created a little bit of stir in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and so there were lots of uh, thrill seekers going up there driving around. So they actually put a police guard up there. The uh, town marshal, Pig Idell, 
uh, set up on it during the daytime, and then they'd have a Wise County Sheriff uh, deputy come up and sit up there at night. This went on for about uh, two weeks, and then the very day that they pulled the police guard, the, the little headstone turned up missing. Okay, and it's never been seen since. Gosh. But, of course, I saw it, and I've even got photographs of it. And it's really interesting, George, because there's, it was just a little sandstone rock type thing that had been chiseled out. And there's like a V-shape on its side with little circles in the middle. And uh, I really believe that it was only half of the original uh, headstone. And if you extrapolate that half to another half, you've got a saucer type shape with little portholes in it. And that's, uh, so it was really fascinating. But what's more fascinating is a few months after all this died down, uh, you know, they threatened a lawsuit. We couldn't dig in the cemetery. The headstone went missing and everybody kind of eventually lost interest. I got a call from Bill Case. He said, meet me up in the Aurora Cemetery. And I did. He had a metal detector. And he said, watch this. And uh, because before, when we'd been up there, he had run this metal detector across the grave, and it registered three uh, hits of metal, one near the headstone, two near the center of the grave. <laughs> George, I still remember that because I was kidding with Bill Case. I said, yeah, that's probably his tricorder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that thing they use in Star Trek. So... This time, uh, a few weeks after the headstone went missing, he runs a metal detector over there. The grave obviously had not been disturbed. It wasn't all dug up. And there were no readings, okay? So we got down on our hands and knees, and we found three little holes, up near one near the, where the headstone had been, two in the middle of the grave. And I said, whoa, what happened here? And he said, well, I think somebody with some very sophisticated equipment uh, came, located these uh, these bits of metal, and used a core sampler to go down there and extract the metal out of this grave. And I said, well, what do you think did that? Do you think that was UFO researchers? And he said, no, I don't think so. And I knew he was going to say, and I agreed with him. And he said, I don't. The, the UFO researchers are not going to break the law like that. He says, I think it was the government, and and I do too. And it could have been. And it could have been, particularly since a few years later I met a woman. Uh, and something came up about the uh, spaceman buried in the Aurora Cemetery, and she says, uh, uh, she said, oh, yeah, I says, uh, said, you know, as a little girl, I used to go play over there, and says, I ran into government agents in that graveyard. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. I said, okay, yeah. I said, that was probably in the early 70s, right, thinking she was referring to the time I was there investigating. She said, no, this was back in the 50s. So, see, there's been government uh uh, interest in that uh, uh, ever since the 50s. In fact, I think you're going to find this real interesting. I have a document <clears throat> that uh, was pried out of the government, and it's a memo uh, from uh, George C. Marshall, who was chief of staff of Roosevelt during World War II, mm -hmm. and it's dated uh, March the 5th, 1942. So this makes it just about a few days after the famous February uh, incident over Los Angeles, the great Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. Well, in this memo, uh, first off, uh, <laughs> this is pretty wild. He says, uh, this was uh, from Roosevelt to Marshall. It says, as indicated in my February the 26th memorandum to you regarding the air raid over Los Angeles, it's been learned from Army G2, that's intelligence, that Rear Admiral Anderson 
uh, recovered unconventional uh, uh, unidentified airplane off the coast of California. Hold on for a second, Jim. We'll pick that up. That's a great story, too, next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jim Mars with us. Jim, you were talking about the the, the episode, of course, of the lights over Los Angeles. And people, when they were shooting at that object, people could hear pings as if it were hitting something metallic. They actually heard something. Right. And uh, there were actually people that died in that. There were some people who died because of car wrecks, heart attacks, and stuff like that because... They they start they they had a brand new weapon at that time. It's called radar, and uh, the public really hadn't heard much about that. They were keeping it secret, uh, you know. But when once the war started, they were really using it, and they actually had picked up these objects, several objects coming uh, uh, off the Pacific, uh, heading eastwards towards Los Angeles. And of course, this was just like a month or so after Pearl Harbor. And the whole West Coast was on high alert. Everybody had the jitters. Everybody was afraid that the Japanese might be launching a invasion of the West Coast. And 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 that was not just sheer fantasy. Uh, actually, a Japanese submarine had surfaced and shelled a, an oil refinery out on the California coast. And so they got all upset. Well, they, these objects came in over Los Angeles, and they began shooting at them with uh, anti-aircraft guns about 11 at night. And this lasted well into the morning hours till 2 or so. And some of this ordinance was falling back on the city, caused some damage, uh, etc. But then uh, a day or two later, the Secretary of War announced that it was just war jitters, okay? And, of course, then the war news came, kept going on and on, and everybody tended to forget about it. But as I've got this document here from uh, Chief of Staff George Marshall to uh, President Roosevelt, and he was saying the, the War Department uh, Naval Intelligence has reported uh, uh, unidentified, they recovered an unidentified aircraft off the coast of California that had no bearing on conventional explanation. And it said, further investigation revealed the Army Air Corps also recovered a similar object in the San Bernardino Mountains east of Los Angeles, which cannot be identified as conventional aircraft. Whoa, so there was really something going on. But, George, the thing that really caught my attention was down at the bottom there's a little further paragraph. And, uh, by the way, all these documents are stamped top secret. I think they've probably been declassified now, but... <clears throat> Obviously, I don't want anybody here to see this. And at the very bottom, Marshall had written, I have further ordered uh, a thorough investigation of all War Department files re re regarding unconventional aerial phenomenon reported since 1897, the very year That's of the Aurora spaceship crash. So I think that they, so there were certain people at high levels of the government who knew uh, what was going on. So I've been tracking that story ever since 73, and here's what's really fascinating is that I know uh, back in the 70s when I first made a trip to Roswell, uh, Roswell is, is actually kind of a small little town, and uh, nobody out there at that time wanted to admit or talk about UFOs. You know, they acted like, wow, we don't know what you're talking about. And because it was just so out of the ordinary and considered so crazy by so many people, of course, all that's changed now, right? <laughs> if you go out to Roswell today, you'll find a big UFO crashed into the side of Walmart, and there's aliens up and down the street. They finally figured out that uh, maybe they should be capitalizing on this. 
Well, the reason I bring that up is because I think it's really interesting that the little little town of Aurora uh, uh, has now uh, set a a date for uh, uh, April the 16th called Aurora Alien Encounter. And they're picking up on this, and they're now uh, they're the, the actual the city is now willing to talk about it. In fact, they have a pretty good roster of people coming in to speak that day. It's only going to be a one-day event, 10 to 4. Um, I'll be there to kick it off and show a uh, DVD about uh, the Aurora crash. Uh, interestingly enough, the keynote speaker will be Travis Walton. Oh, love the guy. Yeah, Super. I know you, you and Walton are good friends. He's going to be there uh, to talk about uh, his experience as well as uh, other UFOs. Uh, Nick Redford, who I, you know, another mm-hmm. friend of yours and ours, mine too, uh, is going to be talking about famous Texas UFOs other than uh, uh, Aurora. Uh, the cute and vivacious Tui Snyder is going to give an overview of the whole Texas airship mystery. And a, uh, Stephen Androsco is going to be talking about the real cowboys and aliens, you know, uh, not the movie that we Good seen. mix of people. Yeah, Jeez. and Noe Torres, who I believe you know. Oh, sure. Uh, Rio. UFO. So they've really got it lined up. And uh, uh, they're going to, oh, this is cool. They're going to have it at the MD Resort which is a really, really nice place right there in Aurora. And then they're going to have a free shuttle bus to take people at their own leisure, at their own time, to the crash site and to the cemetery where the little pilot was buried. Is it eerie when you walk those sites thinking of what had happened years ago? Well, it kind of has been for me, especially in the cemetery, because the cemetery is a really old cemetery. In fact, you find uh, tombstones there, markers for Confederate war veterans, things like that. And But it's really, it's, it's a peaceful thing. It's up on the hillside, and you can see all around the countryside. That always interests me, too, because you can tell that if something's crashing to earth, it would hit at the highest point, and, and that's it, okay? Um, but here's what's really wild, and we, I know you don't want to spend all your time on Aurora, but uh, uh, start back in the 70s, and I've been keeping up with that for years, and, and frankly, uh, George, I, I've always been a little undecided. I, I thought there was enough going on there that indicated something must have really happened. Mm-hmm. But then there's, you know, a lot of the people, well, they live out in the country, and they are out in the country because they want to be left alone. Well, I mean, did you have doubts? Oh, yeah, yeah, because at the, especially back in the 70s, what, spaceman, spaceship crashed here? Well, you know, what? <laughs> but uh, but I'll tell you something, but then when the headstone went missing, and then when the metal in the grave went missing, and then I was able to, <coughs> whoa, excuse me, I was able to uh, actually interview three uh, old, old citizens there who uh, had been there. One of them, Robbie Hansen, said, no, it didn't happen, it's just a big joke, you know. Well, by her own account, though, she didn't even live in Aurora. She lived way outside somewhere, and her story was that somebody came by, rode by, and told her dad about it, and he laughed and said, oh, that old Judge Proctor, he's such a joker. And so based on that, she said, no, it didn't happen. It was just a hoax. But then there was Mary Evans, who was a young girl at the time, about 12, and she said she actually heard this boom, heard this crash, and that her parents all ran into town to see what had happened, but she was too young, they wouldn't let her go. She said, but they came back and they were all talking about uh, this crash and all this metal debris that had been laying all around. So that would indicate it probably really did happen. But then I actually talked to a fellow named Charlie Stevens, 
who actually had witnessed the whole thing. He was a young boy, about uh, 13 or 14, and it was early in the morning, and he was out with his dad doing chores, and uh, saw the thing going over and said it was sputtering and kind of drifting towards the earth. He said it, it, it seemed to him like it, it, it had some problem. And then he heard the crash up in town, boom, and they saw smoke going up. <clears throat> and this is this is a little uh, bit of his story that kind of tells me he's got to be telling the truth. That something happened. That's yeah, right. well, here's the thing, George. If he was just making up something, what would he say? He'd say, well, I ran out of town. I saw a little alien. I saw this. I saw that. Sure. No, really no. juice make it juicy. It make it really juicy. <laughs> but instead he said he wanted <laughs> he wanted to run in town see what had happened. But his dad said, no, son, we have to finish the chores. And, uh, you know, being a Texan and uh, living out in rural Texas, I can assure you in 1896, if you didn't take care of the chores, you didn't eat, <laughs> you know. So to me that was a very real thing that they, they had to finish the chores. So... Uh, that's the that's the Aurora thing, and now there's been some scientific uh, uh, examination. They have found um, using ground penetrating radar. Well, first let me say that the debunkers have always said it was a hoax. It never happened, and therefore there's no grave. Therefore there's no crash debris anywhere. Yeah, it right. Just, you know. Oh, and the Judge Proctor did not have a windmill. Okay. Well. Scientifically, we now know, because we use ground-penetrating radar, that there is a grave, a short grave at that site, because the ground's disturbed at those levels, okay? We also found the uh, footing for a windlass, which is a derrick or a tower uh, that Judge Proctor used to uh, operate the sump for his pump. Okay, now, so it's true, apparently he did not have a windmill on top of it, but he did have a tower, and that apparently is what the object struck. But the key thing to me <clears throat> is that we have found little bits of molted aluminum, like little... Like uh, aluminum, and, and aluminum is not natural. No, no, it's, it's fabricated metal, yeah. And, and so you got these little BB size and little pieces of metal embedded in the trees and in rocks around the crash site. And the scientists say, well, that's an indication of a big explosion there. And I remember back in the 70s, I interviewed Brawley Oates. Uh, they owned the property there. And he'd been there since before 1940. And he said, there hasn't been any explosion here. So something happened before 1940. And as you said, uh, George, uh, aluminum, uh, number one, what we find is the the composition of this aluminum is not like aluminum produced today, all right? Although it is aluminum. But also, I went and did a little bit of research on aluminum. Aluminum has only been uh, being made like less than 10 years before 1896. And in 1896, it was aluminum was so rare that it cost more than gold. <laughs> So, you know, I am now pretty convinced that there really was some sort of craft that crashed in Aurora, Texas, six years before the Wright brothers flew. And uh, I think it would be a great opportunity with the city uh, backing this thing as they are for people uh, around Texas and North Texas area. Or even some of you folks that are listening in other places, you can get down. Uh, you ought to come down for this day of, uh, and learn about the great Aurora spaceship crash. Somewhat, somebody somewhere has the bones of a little alien. <laughs> Probably in Area 51, right? Yeah. Somebody, you know, I've always thought, Jim, that these 
multi-billionaires would collect things like that, like they might have the artifacts of the Anunnaki. And, and right. I, I just think, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is in some guy's house. Well, hey, we know where that is. That's in the government warehouse, right? I saw that in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, another Indiana Jones is coming out, and you kind of remind me of him. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I've been accused of uh, wearing an Indiana Jones hat, but anyone who's known me for a long time realizes that Indiana Jones copied me. That's right. You, you had it first. Yeah, Jim, we got a couple minutes, and we're going to talk again uh, next hour and take some calls. But I want to ask you about something we're hearing, and I think you've been doing some work with this. Has, has our government, our government applied for an, a patent on the Ebola virus vaccine and something to do with medical marijuana. I'm, I'm just hearing something weird. Why our government would be interested in a patent on this? Right. Well, you know, we're supposed to be so scared of Ebola, uh, and uh, and yet they they're taking out a, a patent on certain forms of Ebola. You know, why would they want to be in charge of that? It makes me wonder. Uh, and I suppose it's so that they can claim ownership so they can test some to find out, you know, how to find a cure. But the one that really gets me is that uh, uh, here so many states have now legalized marijuana, uh, but the federal government still has still has the laws in the books against it. And, and yet, uh, back in, the, this was all, uh, the details are in my book, um, um, Population Control, Back about 2002, uh, naming the patent holder as the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the government suddenly <laughs> took out a patent on medical marijuana. And it's like, well, now that the government's got their fingers in it, well, then maybe they, you know, maybe that's why they relaxed a little bit on these laws. But uh, but now I see that it may even be a worse thing than we're thinking about because. Now there are two large pharmaceutical corporations uh, who have um, applied to the government to study uh, medical marijuana to, uh, to see that if it might indeed have some health benefits, as so many people have claimed for so many years. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you go back, you'll find in the early 1930s when the federal government and Congress uh, uh, in their infinite stampedeness uh, outlawed marijuana. The only person that actually came and spoke before the Congressional Committee in favor of marijuana was a representative of the American Medical Association. And, and he argued, he said, hey, this has been in our pharmacopoeia for years. You know, why are you trying to outlaw it? But we could go into that whole thing. Well, it helps fight cancer. It's got all kinds of medicinal purposes. Exactly. So now these two pharmaceutical giants have said, okay, we're going to study it to see if it's medicine. Well, now the FDA steps in and says, okay, now wait a minute. If they, uh, if these medical, if these pharmaceutical corporations are going to study it as a medicine, then it must be a drug. And therefore, you know, now it's going to be illegal <laughs> now to have it because uh, the two pharmaceutical companies are going to be trying to get a right. lack on it. So it, it's it's just the whole thing's insane. Everything but, seems to be insane this year. Everything seems to be upside down. Are you feeling that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the, the good news, George, is that, you know, think back to the most probably the most turbulent and trying time of your life. And that was when you were a teenager, right? Uh -huh. And what's happening with teenagers? They're growing up. And it's a painful experience, but we all 
years of being a teenager, and I think that that's what's happening here with us as a nation. We're going through some really strange and tough things right now, but if you really look around, there's so many good things happening, so many people waking up, so many people listening to George Nori and other people, you know. Uh, and I think uh, on the whole, we're actually progressing. That's why uh, something tells me we're going to see uh, a lot of attendance at the Aurora Spaceship thing on uh, April the 19th and at uh, uh, the Ozarka uh, UFO Conference, which is uh, that's, that's coming up. Uh, uh, Already, that's, uh, that uh, used to be put on by the late Dolores Cannon. Exactly, yeah. and that's coming up on April the 8th through the 10th. And then uh, you and I are going to be together out at Contact in the Desert. And then we're celebrating my birthday out there. Oh, is that the deal? Uh-huh. Can I have a cake? I, I don't know what Tommy's got planned. He's got something planned. Well, tell Tom that he's got to have some cake beer. All right, we're going to come back in a moment. We'll uh, continue chatting with Jim Mars. We'll get his uh, take on the state of the planet. And we'll take your calls with him, too. And our special guest of this hour, Jim Mars, talking about all kinds of things. Next up, we're going to ask him uh, his take on just what's happening on this planet right now. So stick around and your calls, of course, on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jim Mars with us. Jim, you know, I still don't know what's happening in the, with the presidential election. I mean, I thought uh, on the Democratic side, uh, Hillary was a shoo-in, and though she's headed for the delegate count, Bernie Sanders had an incredible weekend, uh, so that thing to me is kind of up in the air. And then the Republican, I still think it's going to be a brokered convention in Cleveland. What do you think? Well, that's what they're working for, and that's, uh, uh, that's kind of makes a travesty out of the uh, Democratic process, I think. Uh, and But I have good news for Hillary, okay? Uh, I wanted to remind her that Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison before he got to be president. <laughs> so, see, you know, there's always hope. But, oh, speaking of hope, though, I've got to mention August 19, 2021, uh, UFOs within reach at Big Bear Lake in California. And uh, I thought you were going to be there, but I found out. I'm there, I'm there via Skype. Yeah, that's right here. Is it true that you're going to be in some cave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. Um, I hope they have a good uh, connection down there, wherever that might be. I know that, yeah. But, hey, I see that your uh, your partner in crime, he's going to be Dan Heiser, he's definitely going to be there. And uh, the inevitable Chase Klutsky, uh she's a live wire. And then they've got a pretty good line up there, there too, you know, if you haven't noticed.
broken down system. Yeah. Do you have any predictions? Well, it's weird. I, isn't I, it? I, I, let me say this: I have kind of changed my opinion upwardly on Donald Trump. Early on, I wasn't too impressed with him because, you know, number one TV personality, mm -hmm. you know, uh, flamboyant businessman, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing was, looking into his background, he's got such close ties with Israel, the Zionists, and with the Clinton family. And I was just, I was really afraid that he was going to be put in there as a spoiler. In other words, and I could, this still could happen. We get to the Republican National Convention and the old guard says, no, no, he's just too volatile. He's, he's too crass. We can't have him. And so they end up choosing somebody else. Then Trump, even though he said he won't do this, he would probably say, well, you know, the people are behind me. He said, I'm going to run as a third-party candidate. If he does, that's going to split up the, the Republican conservative vote and Hillary gets in. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I've been afraid of. But I want to tell you something. Uh, after uh, reading some stuff from people who are close to Trump and then from looking at his uh, rallies, which tend to be average folks, good folks, with no big problem except for the pro-Hillary, pro-leftist people that are, are causing all the violence and then trying to, you know, throw that off on him. And then I, I, I think you've had uh, that Oates fella on your program before that does the reverse speech. Yeah, David Oates. Yeah, David Oates. And, uh, and, when I, and look at all the material he's got. And uh, all the other candidates, when they say something in, the, in reverse speech, they're somehow <laughs> or hiding something. And Trump, he just, he's exactly what he says he is. You know? Reverse or forward or backward, he's the same. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, of course, they'll say, well, it may be too radical. It may be blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, but, hey, look, folks, <laughs> you know, the, we, the Republicans, you go, you go back to uh, – uh, the, the first Bush administration, then you got uh, a Democratic administration under Clinton, and then you've got another Republican under George Bush Jr., and then you've got uh, uh, Obama. Uh, holy cow! You know that both parties have had their chance, and we're still in a mess economically, militarily. You know, and bombing people all around the world. So we we definitely need a change, and and uh, so. It's going to be wild. It sure is. Yeah, I've been reading Seymour Hersh's book about the dark uh, side of Camelot. Yeah. And i got to tell you, the, the things that went on in, in 1960 with Kennedy to defeat Nixon were absolutely unbelievable. I mean, right. buying West Virginia, buying Chicago, working with the mob. I well, mean, it was incredible stuff, Jim. Yeah, and here's what's creepy to me and scary is that all that took place when there were paper ballots that yes. could, could be recounted and could be checked. Today, with these uh, computer voting machines, uh, you know, the hackers have a field day, uh, and there's no guarantee that any of our votes are being countered properly. Oh, that's true. Okay, let's go to the phones. Let's start with Mike in Montana. Hey, Mike, welcome to the program. Good evening, George. Good evening, Jeff. Howdy. Uh, kind of <laughs> Kind of interesting you're talking about Dallas there. My question is, um, Mr. Morris, do you believe, uh, what's your opinion about Jack Ruby and do you believe he was forced to kill Oswald? Ah, this is right down your alley, Jim. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't think I could do any better than to paraphrase what he said uh, at one of the few opportunities that he had to be interviewed uh, after he shot Oswald and uh, 
uh, he got, uh, they ordered a new trial, and so he had to go back to court um, for the new trial, and he was granted a new trial, but it never happened because he died of uh, cancer before that. But when he showed up in court, some of the local TV crews were there, and one of them interviewed him, and, and he is still there on sound and film, uh, I believe with Channel 11 in Fort Worth, and he said, the true facts of what has occurred will never be brought before the American people uh, because of the people that have so much to lose, uh, you know, by telling the truth. And the interviewer said, Jack, you mean people in high offices? And he said, yes. So there you go, folks, right from the mouth of Jack Ruby. He did what he was ordered to do. But we, and I keep in mind that for years after the assassination, the official government story was that uh, Jack Ruby had no connection to anybody. He was just... Well, he knew Oswald. Oh, of course. Now we know that he and Oswald were in touch. Uh, we know that he had worked with the mafia. He, he was not a made mafia guy because he was Jewish, but he was worked for the mafia. He even ran messages for Al Capone in Chicago as a youngster, so he was totally uh, under control by the mafia, and when they told him he was going to have to go into the police station and kill Oswald. He didn't want to do it. In fact, uh, I'm convinced that there is evidence to show that he tried to warn people about that. Uh, he, he even called the Dallas dispatchers the night before and said, you got to change the uh, transfer agreement because we're going to kill him. And yet they didn't. They, wow. they still did the same thing. And then I've always been amazed at when they brought Oswald out to the basement of the police station and here's all these newsmen, a whole crowd of people. Mm -hmm all this hubbub going on, they got one hand handcuffed to one cop and the other hand handcuffed to another cop, and he spread eagle walking yeah. through there. So he can't a perfect target. Perfect. And I worked around police for years and years and years, and I'm seeing them handcuff people with their hands in front of them. I'm seeing them handcuffed with their hands behind them. I'm seeing them handcuffed to radiators or a car handle or something so they can't get away. But I, that's the only instance I can think of when they handcuff somebody spread eagle and walk them through a potentially dangerous situation. And wasn't Jack Ruby interviewed by the then columnist Dorothy Kilgallen, who died herself? The whole thing was weird. Yeah. Well, you just hit the nail on the head, George. The whole thing is weird. It's weird from start to go. They, uh, number one, they started off violating Texas law. Uh, at that time, there were no laws against uh, assassinating the president, and so it fell under homicide laws in Texas. And under the law, you couldn't move the body until there had been a coroner's inquest. Well, the coroner shows up at Parkland Hospital, and the Secret Service, uh, drew guns on him, cursing, hollering, screaming, said, this is the president, we're taking him out of here. And he said, but that's not the law. And uh, later they said, well, they had been told to do that by Lyndon Johnson. Well, if that's the case, then isn't it ironic and isn't it something that one of the first actions that Lyndon Johnson took upon becoming president of the United States was to violate the laws of his own state? Amazing stuff. Yeah. Next up, Lakeland, Florida. Hello, Gordon, it's your turn. Hey, um, thanks for uh, taking my call, sure. um, and, uh, George. Uh, I have a theory about what could be done to settle the problem between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump's use uh, system about my wife. And I'm trying to pitch this, and it's not real popular. Uh, now, a lot of the talk show hosts are telling them to knock it off because, you know, I'm one of the conservatives that don't want there to be infighting and hand the thing over to Hillary. Mm -hmm. but, but now, I have a proposal that I think might work, and I want to run it by y'all. Both men claim to be Christians, and if they do, then they should obey Jesus where he said three 
three things. One, love your friends. Two, love your enemies. And this is a big one. Three, if you have a complaint or a grievance, go to your brother privately in Matthew 18, 15. Don't go to the public and stir it up. Go to him privately, discreetly, and if that don't work, drag one or two other people with you as witnesses so that can be, things can be established. And I've been trying to pitch this to everyone, and I think I'm getting persecuted because I'm a Christian and people are treating me like I'm a nobody. Of course, except y'all. And um, y'all guys know me, Gordon Watts from Lakeland. I mean, everyone knows me. So I want to run this by y'all. Is this a good idea or what? Wouldn't hurt, Gordon. It wouldn't hurt, especially with what's going on. I mean, I've never seen a campaign where they yank each other's wives in on the thing. Jeez. Uh, Gordon, I, I think you have a great idea there, but see, you're operating on the assumption that uh, this is a serious uh, political campaign between serious people who want to serve the country. You know, the, what we're witnessing is a dog and pony show, and uh, it's all about ratings, and it's all about who can one-upmanship and everything else. It's about everything that's probably wrong. With it's a media circus. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they play to that, you know. It's just like in the media. If you, okay, if it's a if it's a reality TV show, it, it, please understand, it's never reality. Okay, there's always a food truck on the other side of the hill or cameras in their in their face. Okay, but so they have to do outrageous stuff to draw an audience and 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 uh, build up the the ratings and everything. But uh, Gordon, let me ask you this: Do you ever watch uh, the uh, World Federation of Wrestling? Oh, oh, yes. Well, not real often, but I see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah, not real often because you know it's rigged, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, so is this political system. But it's great entertainment show. Oh, yeah, it's a great dog and pony show. Body slams to the middle and all that. Right. All right, next up, thanks, Gordon. Let's go to Dave in Seattle, Washington. Hey, David, go ahead. Hey, good evening. Um, I first heard about the Aurora, Texas uh, alien uh, crash when I saw Timmy Snyder's photograph online. I'd never heard this story before. Oh, it's a photograph of the gravestone. Now, um, Jim was saying that the gravestone he was talking about had been stolen, and I noticed after Timmy's photo kind of got circulated around the Internet, the gravestone was stolen. Now, I think Jim said at an earlier date, I was wondering if they replaced it, if they did replace it, who did it. And if people are stealing the thing, do you think it's a souvenir or does someone not want people to know about this? And uh, I'll let you speculate on that. And, oh, I think Tilly, by the way, was on uh, Coast to Coast late last year, wasn't she? Yep, sure was. Mm-hmm. Sure was. Okay, go ahead, Jimmy. My problem is I'm not sure which photograph you're talking about. Uh, I don't know if she was showing the actual headstone, but I suspect that what you saw uh, was uh, somebody's reproduction of a headstone. In fact, right now, last time I was over at the Aurora Cemetery, which was only like less than a month ago, they've got a huge boulder sitting there, you know? Uh, and it's not even on the exact uh, place of the of the uh, grave, but it's very, very close. It's within a few feet, and I had never seen that before, and I, I was told that they put that there so that they can uh, direct people to the correct area. So I don't know if it was a picture of that, uh, and then there has there was somebody else that uh, some private citizen I believe who kind of worked up uh, their own little uh, marker thing and it was there for a while but they took that up uh, and so now to your basic question the original tombstone that they had put in place I'm assuming back in 1896 
was the one that disappeared in 1973, uh, the one I saw originally, and the one that I do have a photograph of the real one, uh, and it's really, really small. But uh, to answer your question, I think either the cemetery uh, association or the feds took the headstone because they, this is part of the deep cover-up. Jim, the original newspaper article of the 1800s, yeah. uh, what did it say specifically? Oh. Did it, did it talk about uh, some kind of aerial craft or anything like that? Well, you know, here's what's really fascinating, George. You're going to love this. Um, it, uh, this was the Dallas Morning News, okay, of uh, April the uh, uh, 19th. This was a few days later when it appeared in the paper. And the story was just a little one-column story down towards the middle part of the page. And, of course, what everybody's argued about uh, for so long is that it was just somebody sent in a hoax story to the newspaper. But uh, if you actually get the entire front page, there are 16 stories on the front page of the Dallas Morning News, April 19th, 1897. And they range from correspondence as far north as southern Oklahoma and as far south as almost to Austin, Texas. And every single one of these stories is talking about the object flying through the air. Now, George, you're going to love this one. I'm sure you've had people ask you time and time again, well, you know, if, if they're here, why don't they just land and stay? And make themselves know. known. Yeah, make themselves known. Hey, we come in peace. Well, let me read you the little piece that's on the same uh, page of the Dallas Morning News that the Aurora Spaceship is on. It says, Granbury, Texas, uh, April 17th. Newt Grisham last night at 9.30 o'clock while drilling the riddle rifles discovered the mysterious flying Jenny of which we've heard so much. Newt is a very warsome young man, being a populist, but he could not stand the sight of the air machine. He ordered the company to open fire on the object, which they did, and the whole town was soon aroused. <laughs> Can you imagine? What is it, Joe Bob? I don't know. Shoot at it. Now, George, you can see why they don't just come and land. That's right. Or obliterate us. Andre in Dallas, Texas is with us now. Andre, go ahead. Hi, Jim and George. How you doing? Go ahead, Andre. Hey, Jim, when is that event going to be in Aurora with uh, Travis Walton? Because I'm definitely going to be there. Yeah, that's uh, that's that Saturday, uh, April the 16th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And, uh, it's a one-day one event, right? I'm sorry? It's a one-night, one-day event. So, yeah, just one day because, see, this is the first time the uh, city of Aurora has ever acknowledged all this. You know, in the years past, uh, uh, most people there didn't, didn't really want to talk about it. But, hey, this is a new time. It's a new century. People are a little bit more open, so uh, that town's getting behind it. So I'd advise you to look at their website, um, the uh, uh, gov, and um, and also you can check Vortex. You should put a link up with your 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 website, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah be sure and check. Yeah, you can check my website. That's jimmars.com, Oddly enough, <laughs> and uh, but uh, yeah. Check with Vortexas, V-O-R-T-E-X-A-S dot net, and that's got some information on there. And you might want to go ahead and, and sign up early so you'll be sure and, and get on the uh, the lunch uh, luncheon that they're planning. How are you doing at airports these days, Jim? Uh, 
How am I doing at airport? Yeah, don't you have? Haven't you had some TSA issues before? Oh, I always have. But you know what? Here's something weird. I don't understand it. Uh, I used to just kind of give them a hard time, not not too hard, because they would shoot you, I guess, or certainly make you miss your plane. Uh, yeah, they won't shoot you. Uh, you know, I, I, for example, one time this one of these TSA guys is groping all over me and asked me all these questions. I said, "Hey, I said, uh, how come you guys aren't down on the border?" Stopping all those people from coming across. He kind of like a slap in the face. He looked at me. He came. He smiled. He said, "You know, I've wondered the same thing." We're going to come back and take final questions with Jim Mars on Coast to Coast AM. Next hour, Mark Anthony joins us. We're going to talk about evidence of eternity. I'm looking forward to that. But we're going to come back in a moment and take more calls with Jim Mars here as we talk about many things going on on this planet. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jim Mars with us. We're going to get to your calls as well in our final segment here. Jim, I want to ask you about drinking water. Are they still pelting fluoride in the water all over the country? Oh, yes. But now there's beginning to be fights with uh, different uh, city councils over this. Uh, and yet, uh, as all the evidence comes forward, it, sodium fluoride... In fact, I have a photograph of sodium fluoride that was sold back in the 1920s, and it says clearly on the label, it says uh, rat poison. Poison, yeah, yeah. or you see back a skull with the X on it, right? Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> wait a minute, so why are they putting poison in our water? Well, it turns out that uh, sodium fluoride was a byproduct of the uh, aluminum manufacturing process, and that it was uh, so nasty that uh, they were prohibited from dumping it in the rivers uh, or the oceans. Uh, and then they also found out during World War II, the, the German Nazis found that by putting just a little dab of sodium fluoride in the water of the concentration camps, that it kept the inmates kind of dulled down and passive and non-resistant, you know? So it really makes you wonder, why are they putting it in our water today? And about three-quarters of the water supply of the United States, especially in the big cities, is they're putting sodium fluoride in the water. Why? Well, because uh, there was some people connected to uh, the aluminum industry uh, that were uh, uh, did a study, and they seemed to indicate that uh, just a little bit of sodium fluoride in the water might prevent uh, some tooth decay by children, mostly male, between the ages of 6 and 12. So just trying to reach that one little six-year uh, gap of people, uh, they, they now put in all the water supply everywhere. The same stuff the Nazis put in to keep people dumbed down. Keep them dumb. You know? Breaking stories, by the way. Hijacked Egypt airplane just lands in Cyprus. That's all we know right now. Gosh, it never ends, Jim. Well, at least they landed. <laughs> yeah, some of them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope they get off okay. Let's go to Roger in Delaware now. Roger, go ahead. You're on with us. Hey, I think the whole uh, Hillary Clinton thing and John Podesta is amazing. You know, in the last few days, we hear more and more about that. Last night on Coast, they had Tom DeLonge, the rock star mm -hmm. from the band Blink-182. It almost sounds like he's a youth ambassador for this. But, um, I mean, we were just talking about the fluoride and... It leads me into chemtrails, you know. Um, I mean, I've heard the uh, thing on the coast before. If, they, if they're not drinking it from the drinking water, maybe we'll rain it down on them. And I was curious. Yep. I, I recently had someone who was a um, 
Well, from one of, one of the various UFO reporting centers told me that the late, great Dr. Roger Lear thought that the chemtrails were somehow related to the alien abduction phenomenon, and I do believe they're definitely related to the UFO, to the orange orb phenomenon. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you guys think that there is a UFO chemtrail connection of any kind. Well, I, I tend to think there is, although I can't put my finger on it. But one reason I tend to think there is is that uh, uh, several years back, a group of uh, Royal Air Force uh, people got together. They were concerned about chemtrails, and they did a study. And they found, uh, counting all the chemtrails uh, and the airplanes that they could account for in Europe, in North America, in uh, Australia, in Canada, they figured out that it would take something like 25,000 uh, airplane flights a day to produce those chemtrails. And, folks, there's not that many pilots. <laughs> they can fly, you know, uh, big, huge, wide-bodied jets up in the upper atmosphere. And then I, too, have seen a couple of photographs that uh, people were trying to take of a chemtrail plane, and uh, oddly enough, here's the chemtrail, and it's moving along, but there doesn't seem to be anything at the head of it. And in another photograph I have in my files, there's like a little round object. So uh, there is a thought that, yeah, maybe it's connected to the UFOs, uh, and that gets really scary because I had uh, one of the uh, remote viewers that was in the Army, one of their senior remote viewers. Uh, who got real interested in, or concerned, I should say, about uh, chemtrails. So he took a remote view look of what it was, and he said the only way he could express what he got about what these chemtrails were about is the term terraforming, if you know what that mm -hmm. means. That means changing the environment That's of right. the planet. Nick in Michigan now. You're up with us, Nick. Go ahead. Good, Good evening, gentlemen. Hi. Uh, Howdy. So, George, uh, I originally called regarding the Centers for Disease Creation and Promotion. Uh, <laughs> Lane claimed to ownership of multiple patents on multiple genetically engineered pathogens. Uh, and I think this is pursuant to John Rappaport's expose. Uh, so I'd like Jim to comment on that, but I'd first like to call attention to Catherine Albrecht, I believe, uh, George, Catherine has a search engine called Ixquick. Ix yes. Quick, right? Yes, I think right. so. If you put into Ixquick, uh, Trump, PSY hyphen ops, sorry, ops, all caps, PSY hyphen ops, uh, you'll find some astonishing data that's absolutely irrefutable, incontrovertible, and, uh, also, uh, George, there's, I know you support uh, people like me who are uh, veterans. Sure do. Uh, we have a uh, most honorable, righteous uh, Marine Corps vet who has uh, an Internet broadcast every Sunday night, uh, at 10 o'clock Central for three hours. It's called Incendiary Radio. Incendiaryradio.com, George. I have yet to hear a more astonishingly uh, brilliant uh, and insightful uh, freelance investigative journalist. I, I wish you would uh, seek Robert uh, at Incendiary Radio for an interview sometime. Uh, and, and lastly, George, but when you bring up fluoride, 
actually records that sodium fluoride was used in the gulag, and he actually IDs the uh, the organizers and conductors of the gulag, which are Aaron Soap, Yakov Rappaport, Lazar Kogan, Matsi Berman, Genrich Yagoda, and Naftali Frankel. And according to Solzhenitsyn, they're all Babylonian Talmudic uh, uh, Hebrews. And that calls attention, George. I hope you'll reach out to Joseph P. Farrell, Ph.D., whom you've interviewed in the past, because uh, as, as Webster Tarpley has documented, these, uh, the, these political theater psyop circuses every four years are nothing more than presidential puppetry. And that's, that's the book of one of uh, Tarpley's close friends, uh, Andrew Cree, who authored the book Presidential Puppetry. Uh, but Joseph P. Thurl and his books, Financial Vipers of Venice and Babylon Thinksters, George and Jim, those are the entities that I'm positive were responsible for contracting out the murders of JFK and his brother and MLK because they all opposed uh, the Vietnam War. And like JFK, mm-hmm. he, he opposed Israel going nuclear with nuclear weapons, and he had designated uh, an entourage to go over to Desmona and ensure that any nuclear weapons production was to be eradicated. Well, I'll check out the incendiary radio person. And, Jim, are you aware of that show? Uh, Only vaguely. Uh, I'm sorry. I've got my head buried in a new book I'm working on right now about the the Illuminati. No. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe I can tell you in on what's real and not about the Illuminati. But Nick, uh, great points, by the way. Yeah, great points. Yeah, and well, these are things that we need to look into. And here's what's really interesting is that John Rappaport, I certainly recommend him. He's a good journalist, and I also I'm, I'm friends with uh, Dr. Farrell. I certainly would uh, recommend him. And what's really interesting, George, is that those two, plus a lot of plethora of others, have been following the same investigative trail that I have, and what's really interesting is, is we all seem to be coming up with the same answers, the same conclusions. We're going to post on our Twitter feed, by the way, Jim, a picture of what could be that alien headstone. Uh, It's it's weird looking. I mean, clearly it looks like a spaceship on the headstone. Strange. Uh, Where would I find that? We, uh, We will post it on our Twitter feed at coasttocoastam.com. Okay. All right? All right. You're into high technology now, aren't you? Yeah. You know, I, I finally learned that if I turn nine on the dial, I can reach the emergency line. I love it. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Fred in uh, Clarendon, Texas now. Fred, you're on with Jim Mars. Go ahead. Howdy, George and Jim. Hi. Howdy. A couple of items, if I might. Uh, first of all, I was a student of Jim's. Back in the 80s, I was convalescing from brain surgery, and I took that course on the assassination of President Kennedy. Well, perfect. And he's well, one journalist that I have uh, a great amount of respect for, and, and so therefore I'm given, I've been a skeptic about these UFOs. But if he sees something in there, then there may be something to it. As a matter of fact, me and a friend of mine, we went out to that cemetery in Aurora, but uh, there was no grave marker there, and there also happened to be a great big old rattlesnake finding himself on one of the graves that was 
in the area where we thought that the grave might be, but we never could find it. Have they, have they intentionally hidden that grave? Uh, I think so. Uh, as I said earlier uh, in the program, I think that either the cemetery association took it up and, and put it away somewhere so they wouldn't have an inordinate amount of people traipsing through their cemetery, or it's entirely possible that the government, who, I, if you'll remember I, earlier in the program, I mentioned the 1942 uh, memo from uh, George Marshall, which said they've been looking into this stuff since the crash of 1897, so I think they may have, it may have been the government taking it up to maintain the UFO secrecy. But hey, I appreciate and applaud your skepticism. We should all be very skeptical, but but uh, make sure you do it all the way around. Make sure you are as skeptical of official pronouncements as you are of people uh, making their claims. By the way, if you need to find our Twitter feed, it is at coasttocoastam.com up there at the uh, lower left. And uh, you'll see it up there, and you can just take care of it that way. Why did I do that popping sound? Oh, no, that was cute. Let's go to Dave in uh, Kauai, Hawaii. Hey, David, go ahead. Hey, Jim, how's it going? You guys are awesome. Thank you, David. I got a quick question about um, back to the Kennedy subject. Uh, are you familiar with the gemstone files? Oh, yeah, very much so. In fact, I, uh, in fact, years ago, I think I, while I was still working for the newspaper, I, I tried to track uh, and verify as much as that information as possible. And, uh, for example, this might interest you, uh, in the uh, Gemstone Files, it says that uh, Clay Shaw, who was, of course, uh, prosecuted for the Kennedy uh, thing in the uh, Jim Garrison investigation in the audience, they said that he was a, a member of this uh, this uh, commercial central commercial Mondale or whatever it is World Trade Centers that was uh, headquartered in Italy and it in, involves the people in, in Canada and so I I went actually went to a library and found a 1962 uh, city directory uh, for New Orleans and uh, sure enough. Uh, Clay Shaw listed himself as a board member of Permindex, this uh, mysterious uh, organization that, as you well know from the Gemstone files, was named as one of the orchestrators of the assassination. So, uh, yes, I found a lot of things. I I'd have to say I could not verify everything in the Gemstone files, but I could verify uh, a whole lot, and it was, it was correct. Very correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you know anything about the history of Jacqueline Kennedy marrying Aristotle Onassis and why, if it was a forced marriage, according to the Gemstone Files, there was some mysterious things happening there with her. Right. Well, from what I know about it, I don't think it was a, uh, a arranged marriage because they had kind of been carrying on with each other even before Kennedy got killed. I think this is a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend <laughs> because the, uh, you know, there's, uh, there is uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that there was CIA involvement uh, in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and who was one of the biggest enemies of the CIA was Aristotle Onassis. In fact, back in the 50s, uh, when he was 
was trying to uh, get ahead in the shipping business, uh, there were CIA operatives attacking his ships uh, off the coast of South America. So I think this was a case of where she went to the one person in the world that she felt like could probably keep her safe from the CIA. What an incredible, strange world we live in, Jim. Very strange. My God. Ryan in St. Louis, first-time caller. Let's squeeze you in, Ryan. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, George, Jim, did either one of you see a program on the History Channel uh, last November when they were talking about the Kennedy assassination? This man out of Australia, he came up, did an expose on it, and he determined that the killing shot of, of Kennedy was done accidentally by a Secret Service person or CIA person in the rear vehicle behind Kennedy's car. He, they heard some gunshots. He reached down on, on the floor, pulled out a rifle. And when he did, their, the car lunged forward because they, they were trying to get Kennedy away from the scene. And he pulled the trigger and, and, and shot him in the back of the head. Yeah, I, I heard that and saw that, and and Jim, I don't think that's what happened. I think that it was a triangular shoot, uh, and they, they got him from three different angles, and the kill shot came from the front, not the back, and uh, gosh, I wish we'd get to the bottom of it, huh? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, let me disabuse you of that. This this was a theory that came uh, out, not from Australia, but actually from some gun expert here in the United States. Uh, and then it was turned into a book. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, the allegation was that a Secret Service agent uh, had an AR-15 and it was going to return fire uh, on the book depository against Oswald, but he slipped and he fell back and the gun accidentally went off and he hit Kennedy in the back of the head. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's all totally false and totally ludicrous. Um, even though the major media made a big deal about it. And this, this, here's a tip off folks. If Time, Newsweek, NBC, CNN, CBS, if they all make a big deal about something in the Kennedy assassination, you can probably write that off. <laughs> you got that right. Hey, Jim, uh, keep in touch, and I'll see you at uh, Joshua Tree and then uh, Skype and everything else, okay? Right. Don't, come to Aurora if you can. That would be nice if I can get away. <laughs> Not too far. I'm in St. Louis right now. Thank you. Jim Mars, of course, he is one of a kind. By the way, I'm going to have a major event myself on June 18th in St. Louis. There'll be more information on that coming, uh, but circle the calendar, June 18th at the Lindenwood University. And I'll be back in a moment with Mark Anthony as we talk about his work, Evidence of Eternity. Well, up next, we're going to talk about spirits in the afterlife, the psychic lawyer back with me, Mark Anthony, and he's next. By the way, his book is doing really well, Evidence of Eternity, when we uh, had him on uh, back, uh, well, about a year ago when we talked about that. So he'll be back with us in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast, and Mark Anthony with us, the psychic lawyer, also known as the psychic explorer author of Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity. He's a world-renowned fourth-generation psychic medium communicating with spirits. He's an Oxford-educated attorney licensed to practice law in Washington, D.C., 
Florida as well, and before the United States Supreme Court. Now, in England, he studied mediumship at the very prestigious Arthur Findlay College for the Advanced of Psychic Science, and that alone, that experience, Mark, must have been amazing. It was great, George, and, and thank you for having me back on Coast to Coast. That's always a pleasure, and I don't know what came first for you, the psychic or the attorney. I think it might have been the psychic part of you. Yeah, it was the psychic part, because this runs in my family. Both my parents had these abilities, and uh, in, in researching my family, it runs for generations on both sides. And, and that's, you know, one of the theories that I talk about in, in Evidence of Eternity and in Never Letting Go is that this appears to be a genetic trait. It, and, and, George, you know, we all have genetic traits. There's a reason sure. it looks like our parents. I mean, left-handedness runs in some families, certain, um, you know, physical and intellectual aspects. So this is, this is one of them. And, you know, we're just now beginning to fully understand this or, you know, getting on the path to fully understanding it. Mark, did you use your psychic ability in your law practice? Yeah, I have to admit that I, I did. <laughs> but, you know, we all have a skill set. And some people, um, you know, they're, they're, they're better at certain things than others. But I found that uh, my intuitive ability, you know, because, um, you know, every medium is a psychic, uh, and, but not every psychic necessarily has mediumistic ability. But uh, with, with intuitive ability, I found that it was extremely useful during jury selection. Uh, to get an idea of what people were feeling. I've also uh, been consulted by a number of people on, on uh, uh, cold cases and helping them to understand, you know, why somebody maybe took their own life or uh, you know, some aspects of, of a murder. So that, that's an ongoing thing. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've always, uh, you know, relied upon and trusted, uh, trusted my feelings. You're known as the psychic lawyer. How did that title come about? <laughs> um, it, it kind of evolved. You know, it's funny when I when I see like in some articles he calls himself the psychic lawyer. Well, I didn't. Uh, I, I was doing interviews because I started uh, in earnest working with my ability. And when people and reporters found out that I was an attorney, uh, somebody said, well, this guy is the psychic lawyer, and it just sort of stuck. And then it's become part of my brand. So uh, it, it was kind of funny the way the way it wasn't like I sat down and said, oh, let's do this or let's call me this. It's just sort of what happened. What over the years now, Mark, what have you learned, what have you concluded about all this that's been happening. And, of course, you put a lot of it into your book, Evidence of Eternity. But what did you conclude? What I've concluded, George, is that what we are able to perceive uh, in, in this life, which I call living in the material world, because, you know, we're material beings, is just a drop of water in the infinite existence of who and what we really are. And that we go through this lifetime um, encountering people and circumstances and situations, and some days are good and some days are bad, and some relationships are wonderful, and there's a lot of pain and suffering. But in the bigger scheme of things, all of these are for a greater purpose and a greater journey. So what I've found is that we're immortal, eternal beings, and we're on this 
this journey and um, that really in, in the energetic and in the sense of our consciousness, we never die. No, we never do. Uh, one of our dear friends, William Henry, calls us light beings, and I understand Albert Einstein thought we were that too. Yes, yes, he did. And, you know, it's great because uh, I'm glad you brought that up because Einstein's back in the news now. Uh, um, about uh, Back in February, uh, scientists uh, announced that gravitational wave. That's right. They found them. <laughs> they found them. And Einstein theorized that 100 years ago, back in 1916. And uh, LIGO, the Large Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, picked up waves from two black holes. And uh, they're circling each other, and they collided. And so the scientific community, NASA and, and uh, the European Space Agency, the Russians, the Japanese, the China, everyone is just so excited about this. And, uh, and it shows, once again, that, that Einstein was correct. But when Einstein was talking about we're all beings of light, that is so true in so many ways. And I know that, you know, we're going to be talking about the light of quantum consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, quantum physics, and a lot of people like to, you know, sling that term around. It is the study of quanta, which are discrete units of energy. And Einstein's one of the founding fathers of the field of quantum physics, and it comes down to this. As simple as I can make quantum physics. Right. <laughs> well, I've had Michio Kaku try to explain it, so we'll let you yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, dive at it. We'll defer to him. <laughs> I, like, I like that commercial he's in when they say, uh, this this costs nothing, and we are having him explain it. He goes, that means it's free. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but but um, the quantum physics is, is the study that everything, energy, matter, everything in the universe, is made up of electromagnetically charged particles. And that's why they call it particle physics, quantum physics, because the technical term for these particles is quanta. And that energy and matter behave both as particles and waves and that everything in the universe vibrates. Um, one of the uh, uh, particle physicists at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory is also a professor at the University of Notre Dame or Notre Dame. Now, Don, that's the one in Chicago. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Don Lincoln. Uh, he said that uh, quantum mechanics tells us that electrons are both particles and waves, and you can never be certain what it will do. But but I like what he he uh, said when he he said that everything he he. He goes, and I mean everything, is just a consequence of many infinitely large vibrating fields. The entire universe is a vast field of a subatomic symphony, and there, everything is vibrating all the time. So when we get into quantum physics, we realize that everything is both um, matter and energy are all composed of the same particles or a lot of the same particles. So when Einstein was going um, by, by making that statement, we're all beings of light, what we found is that light is both particles and waves. So once again, Einstein was, was proved correct. And we now know um, from, from studies done all over the world uh, in, in the, the U.K. at Oxford and in Cambridge and the U.S. at MIT and the University of Arizona at the Russian Institute, Japan and Germany, they believe that there is a stream of photons within the brain, in other words, um, 
uh, light and wave and energy particles that possess a quantum field. And this is now taking a lot of people in a very fascinating direction, George, because we're starting to see a bridge now between the scientific and the spiritual. This very well may be the scientific basis for the existence of what a lot of people like to call the soul. Now, that could be amazing if we could truly scientifically discover the soul. That's you know, and it's one of the things I said in my first book, Never Letting Go, is that uh, the ultimate objective of science is the, the discovery of God, the discovery of an afterlife. And a lot of people have been saying that. And, and sadly, the scientific and the spiritual and the communities have, have traditionally been at odds. But with, with a lot of the people of faith beginning to be less dogmatic and rigid in their thinking, and a lot of the people in the science community being less dogmatic and rigid in their thinking, they're beginning to see that that uh, they're 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 actually on the same page when it comes to the immortality of the energy that makes us alive. You know, they've called this universe very electric, and it seems like it is. And people like Einstein, who were able to deduce this a uh, hundred years ago without the, you know, the benefit of a computer. You know, I sometimes think the guy was a time traveler, Mark. <laughs> uh, I, you know, um, it's just funny you say that because so many of his theories uh, dealt with uh, warps in time and space. And, and maybe he was, or maybe the fact that he had the type of intellect that could tune into the, this, this vibration, if you will, uh, that's going on, and that, that's a, a good way of, of putting it, George, because when I was studying uh, psychic and, and mediumistic phenomena, um, the quantum theorists, you know, starting with Einstein and, and going all the way up until, until today, they talk about time being timeless, that you and I think there's a time because we look at clocks and we're born, we grow old, and then we die. And so we think that time actually exists, and, and our entire culture is built upon the fact that the Earth rotates on a 24-hour circle and then goes around the world, I mean, around the sun in 365 days a year. So we, we base this concept of time on that. But when you start looking at what the quantum theorists are saying is that everything that has happened will happen and uh, is happening is occurring simultaneously in the energetic sense. And the theory is that people who are psychic, and, and I'm not just going to limit it to people who are psychic. Uh, I think that everybody, particularly parents, you know, you have premonitions and feelings, and 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 uh, um, you have dreams which seem to be prophetic in nature. Everybody is capable of having this type of experience. Is what's actually happening is that their brainwave frequency is then aligning itself with this, and therefore you are able to glimpse events which you and I might call the future, but in the energetic sense is occurring parallel to what we are experiencing from a material world perspective. You have talked about the uh, pineal gland that it does uh, and has an effect on us. Tell me about that. The pineal gland is, is a fascinating, fascinating part of our brain. It's a small, you know, pea-sized, lima bean-sized uh, gland, and 
behind the center of the forehead. Now, for the people that are interested in yoga and particularly uh, folks that are acquainted with Buddhism and Hinduism, they talk about the chakras in your body and the um, so-called third eye chakra, which is in the middle of your forehead, um, is, is a few, few inches behind that is the location of the pineal gland. Now, the pineal gland has been studied extensively uh, since World War I, uh, particularly in England and more recently, not just in Britain, but in the U.S., Israel, France, and Germany. And recent discoveries have found that there are calcite and magnetite crystals within the pineal gland, and these generate an electromagnetic field. So, so what happens is the, the pineal gland has what are, are known as piezoelectric properties. It sends out EM waves, electromagnetic waves. Long story short, we have a receiver, a transmitter, um, in our, our brain. We have a form of a radio station within the brain. And the pineal gland goes even further than that. For such a small organ, it's extremely complicated. It controls our circadian rhythms. That's right. when we get up, we, you know, we, we do things during the day. It secretes the hormone melatonin, which regulates our sleep cycles. And it also governs our ability to perceive light. And uh, that ties into a lot of theories about the importance of light, not just in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense. So the pineal gland is believed to be the physiological apparatus that allows everybody to have either a psychic or mediumistic experience because that's the gland that, that, that covers it. Now, people ask me all the time, well, you know, can everybody talk to spirits? Can everybody um, have a psychic experience? Well, everybody can swim, but not everyone can be Michael Phelps. Everyone can do math, mm -hmm. but not everyone can be Stephen Hawking. You know, we, can, you know we, we all have varying abilities. Some people are just better at it than others. Well, that's true. There's no question about that. So let's get him back to light again. Are you saying that all our abilities, consciousness, um, life after death, communicating with the other side, is tied into this electrical universe we're in? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're just now beginning, beginning to see this. Um, when we talk about, talk about the pineal gland, um, okay, it, it, it governs our ability to perceive light. Every great spiritual teacher, from Krishna through Moses, through Buddha, through Jesus, I mean, all the way up into today, to, through Billy Graham, uh, through Mother Teresa, uh, through Yogananda, refers to God as the light. And then when you look at the near-death experience studies, and uh, I've worked uh, um, quite a bit with, with people uh, with near-death experiences, I myself having had one, my father's had two of them, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing the Spirit Symposium in Sedona June 9th through the 11th with Dr. Gary Schwartz. Oh, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's awesome. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward to working with him again. And we're, we're putting on the Sedona Spirit Symposium um, to understand life in the, uh, in the afterlife in the 21st century. And near-death experience uh, survivors or near-deathers, as they call them, this is when your consciousness separates from your body. In other words, you die, and then you come back to life. 
And the near-death experience people, myself included, um, encounter a light, and you will see people that you know who've died, mm -hmm. and the light can only be described as this vast love, peace, intelligence as God. And um, I had a discussion um, when I was speaking at Edgar Casey Center, uh, and I'll be, be there in New York uh, actually next week. Um, we were, were discussing that even the word God is, is too limiting, is, is too limiting for this. Yeah, I mean, you know, God, we, we, we have all these anthropomorphic, these humanized versions of, you know, God being a, a human being or, or a human-like figure, and, and perhaps God is. But, but uh, for, for people who, who study this, is what we tend to do is be, when, when you are separating from your physical body, you're, you're still evaluating things, if you will, on the basis of our limited material world existence. And now you're encountering the ultimate infinity. I mean, we're, we're talking God. And so until you make the transition from a material world conscious viewpoint to an immortal conscious viewpoint, you tend to classify and recognize this entity, the, the, this infinity, uh, in human terms. Um, but everyone refers to this as light. So it appears that our ability to perceive the spiritual energy of God comes to us in the form of light. And that's why throughout the, the, the millennia, I mean, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Hindus, everybody referred to God as, as light. But it's, it's more fundamental uh, than that. When you look at it, George, our life on this planet requires light. And that's no woo-hoo theory. The fact of the matter is the Earth is positioned about the right distance from this, the star we call the sun. We're lucky. Without, yeah, yeah. Well, we're very lucky. I mean, you know, Venus is 800 degrees. Of course, then one could say it was designed this way. Yeah, I, and I tend, I tend to, to agree. Uh, in fact, I do agree. It was designed this way. We have to exist, um, and we exist because of light. And photosynthesis, all, everything that we eat, that we consume, is a form of concentrated light. I mean, you know, plankton, plants, you know, uh, if you eat vegetables or you eat animals that eat vegetables, I mean, we're all consuming a form of light. And so light is is for the planet's existence, for our own existence, from a psychological standpoint, uh, the people that live in, in darker latitudes. Hold on for a second, Mark. I, I want to ask you about biophotons uh, when we come back, and then we'll really get into quantum consciousness. Welcome back. Mark Anthony with us. And, Mark, before we get into quantum consciousness, let's talk a little bit about biophotons. They seem to be in the news a lot lately. What are they? Biophotons are great. Um, you know, when, when Einstein said that we're all beings of light, um, and, and the spiritual uh, teachers and leaders talk about God being perceived as light, what we found is that our cells emit ultra-weak photon emissions, which are referred to as biophotons. Um, in other words, our cells talk to each other using flashes of light. Uh, think about it this way. If you drop a bowling ball on your foot, you immediately know that that hurts because you feel the pain. And this is, is um, scientists have been curious about how is it that that 
that message gets from your foot to your brain so quickly, like instantaneously. We know it's not a chemical transfer. And in the 1920s, uh, Russian scientist Alexander Gerbich, he, he believed and theorized that there were biophotons, which were proven uh, decades later in Germany by uh, Fritz Albert Popp, and then more recently, in, in once again in Russia, by Sergei uh, Mabrov. And what biophotons are, is it's different than bioluminescence. Bioluminescence are things like fireflies and, and other um, creatures that emit external light. Biophotons are very, very low levels of light, and we know that light can transmit information and energy. Once again, tying into what Einstein and the quantum physicists talk about um, quanta, particles of energy, which compose everything. So now, what we're finding in our body is that our cells appear to be more of a matrix that, that flashes back and forth. And, and I read something recently in a physics journal that an individual cell can emit 100,000 flashes of light per minute. So this is not some random thing. We are popping and, and uh, we, we are, are actually beings of light. And, you know, this really is not a, a far-fetched theory. Uh, the simple fact is is that life can't exist on Earth without light. Okay, you know, I mean, it makes the plants grow, it makes our our world not a frozen chunk of ice uh, orbiting around in space. So, if our body is dependent on life, then it's logical that our body also emits light. So, light is something that is both within you and without you. All right, let's move into quantum consciousness, of course, and you talk about real science dabbling with the unusual and the paranormal. That's right. That's what this is, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, quantum consciousness, there are, are scientists all over the world. I mean, we're talking from, you know, uh, Oxford and, and Moscow and Paris and the United States, uh, I mean, all, all over the place, Japan, that are talking about quantum consciousness. And um, Hans-Peter Durer of the Max Planck Institute in Germany, I like, like what he said, is that, um, you know, we've got all these energy particles. I mean, we are energy particles. And that within our brain, which is a highly sophisticated organ, there's a lot of electrical activity going on there. And that our brain uh, has all of this uh, activity going on in uh, microtubules. And I'll get into that in a minute. But long story short, what uh, Dr. Durr and um, other professors, particularly Jeremy Hayward from Cambridge, what they're saying is that our brain seems to be a formatting instrument. In other words, it's a carbon-12 resonator floating in salt water. It's, it's an organ, a very sophisticated organ, but it does not create consciousness. It merely houses it. And you can look at our brain like a computer hard drive. Okay, the computer hard drive, it formats and it stores energy, but when the hard drive ceases to exist, think of the energy, uh, the quantum field within it being transferred to a thumb drive, and the thumb drive goes on. And we know that energy from the laws of physics 
is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. So as, as Dr. Durr said that, um, he said, when we die, the body or the hard drive is gone, but our consciousness, the data on the computer lives on. So in that way, we're immortal. And he's not alone in, in saying this, because there are a lot of physicists now who are saying that it may be a mistake to ban the understanding of the spirit from nature um, and, and that, that we are on the verge of proving the existence of a soul as being a coherent and cohesive quantum field which is transferred from the physical body to, to another dimension. Mark, let's talk for a moment about the design. There's no way this could have been a fluke of nature. Something, some power, some entity had to put this all together uh, and plotted it out as good as anything you could ever imagine. Hey, George, I, I can't disagree with you there. Um, you know, is this just a fluke? Is this just a random accident? I mean, there's a lot of people, there's, there's the cynics, in a, and there's people who claim to be skeptics who say, oh, no, you know, this is just a random thing. But it, it's, it's, it's too perfect. And it appears that, uh, you know, I, I believe in intelligent design. I believe in God. Do I believe God is a white guy on a throne with a scepter smiting people? No. Um, but I believe that, that God is energy, intelligence, love, and that we're all interconnected energetically. Now, you can say, oh, well, that's just some woohoo, airy fairy theory, but then you've got quantum physics, which is saying exactly that that all matter, all energy are, are composed of subatomic particles that have a lot more in common with each other than they do differences. Okay, so let's look a little bit about the incredible abilities of Edgar Cayce. You just mentioned him. Uh, he was able to do all kinds of things in his trance state. Yes, yes. Edgar, Edgar Cayce, um, there's three different types of mediums. There's mental mediums. That, that's like me where I receive images that are transferred to me and they appear in my mind's eye and my mind's ear. Then there's physical mediums, that's a different, you know, who are, you know, theoretically supposed to be able to project um, ectoplasm. Uh, but then there's people like Edgar Casey who are, in, in the UK we refer, refer to them as trans mediums. Here in the United States we call them channelers. And what happens is, a spiritual entity or entities temporarily takes use of their body. Now, I know some people, oh, it's possession. It's not possession because um, the host medium is aware of what's going on. And these are good entities that take possession. Okay. Yeah, these are, these are yeah. <laughs> well, we'll say temporarily. We'll call it leases them. Um, <laughs> but um, um, Edgar Casey. Uh, in fact, the Edgar Casey um, Association for Research and Enlightenment is uh, a nationwide, worldwide organization. They have several branches, one in Virginia Beach, which I, I spoke at, and then one um, in New York City, which I'll be speaking at uh, next week. Um, both, um, it's just on my website, evidenceofeternity.com. Uh, I'll be speaking um, a week from th uh, Friday and Saturday. That's your New York tour, right? That's my New York tour. I'll be speaking at Columbia University Bookstore on um, April 6th. So I'm looking forward to that. Columbia invited me to speak there. 
Now, Edgar Casey received so much information of a medical, a spiritual, a prophetic nature that he was documented for, for years, uh, thousands and thousands of readings that he did. And a lot of the information that came through was about God. And in getting to Einstein's statement that we're all beings of light, and now what we have quantum physicists saying that, um, that uh, we have a quantum field within us and medical scientists proving that we have biophotons. And Edgar Casey, in one of his readings, he said that electricity or vibration, and, and actually he didn't say this, this came through him in, in a trance state, Energy or vibration is that same energy, the same power you call God. Not that God is an electric light or an electric machine, but vibration that is creative is of the same energy as life itself. This is pretty, pretty amazing because what was coming, yeah, what was coming through Edgar Casey at a time when quantum vibrations were merely a theory as opposed to a fact. I mean, he died in the late 1940s, and this was coming through in the 30s. Einstein proposing his theories, you know, 10 to 15 years before this, and now that we're seeing that what came through Edgar Casey about electrical and energetic vibration, which is God. Now, this opens a door, George, and of course, coast to coast is the absolute perfect place for this question. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. if energy is everywhere, and energy can transmit information and intelligence, then wouldn't that mean God is everywhere? Because if God is energy and everything, whether it's a frozen lump of ice beyond the orbit of Pluto to you and I to the radio waves uh, that this is being transmitted on are all um, utilizing or composed of energetically charged particles, then this would explain how God is a multi-dimensional intelligence that transcends all space and time. And, uh, you know, this is something that, that uh, the great religious and spiritual leaders for centuries have been saying. This is what um, Edgar Cayce transmitted to us. This is what the quantum physicists are theorizing. And it's all there. And we are now just beginning to be able to put all of this together. So let us bring in, of course, the thoughts of humans as multidimensional beings. This ability to be able to do incredible things from the other side. How does that happen? Well, this is, is a fascinating um, field um, of study. In my book, Evidence of Eternity, um, I, I introduce a number of concepts. One of them is frequency beacons. And it's like, you know, people that are parents, let's get away from, from the, the psychic woo-hoo stuff, you know, or so, as some people call it. Um, to me, it's just, you know, every day. <laughs> but mm. but uh, um, parents, let's say something terrible happens to one of your children, and all of a sudden you just know it. I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, they, they were killed or something, but maybe, you know, your, your child was hurt or injured or, or you know, some, something happened, and you just know it. And do you think that's a fluke? And, you know, parents have such a, an incredible emotional bond with a child, and love is a form of energy, so there's an energetic link. And what I explain in Evidence of Eternity is that we're all energetically interconnected. Think of a three-dimensional spider web, 
in that um, each strand of the web is a connection with a person that we love, both on this side of existence and on the other side. And it's it's how when when let's say you're you're grieving very heavily and you're thinking about somebody who's died, you're sending an energetic vibration uh, out, and and the spirit picks up on that. Uh, similarly, let's say you're driving down the road and you turn on the radio, um, and there's a song that makes you think of of that particular loved one. Well, spirits are able to emit these frequency beacons to us as well. When we start looking at this on the quantum level. What we're seeing is that electrons, um, and this has been observed in, in laboratories and, and, and been uh, created in laboratory conditions and observed, electrons, they're energy, they're, they're part, um, a component of an atom, and they disappear, and then the same electron will reappear in a different place, let's say, you know, in your brain, but the electron is not crossing or, or traversing or going through the, um, the, the matter. In other words, it's appearing in one spot, uh, disappearing in one spot, reappearing in another, but not going through the matter in between. And physicists are wondering, well, where is it going? And the theory is that it is going to a different dimension, okay? And... This is what's known as a quantum leap. Now, we all remember the show with Scott Bakula, Quantum Leap. I mean, I loved it. Okay. It was a great show. Yeah, it was a great show. And a quantum leap, he was jumping from one time to another time and into a different body and so on and so, so forth. And a physicist and, and author, Evan Harris Walker, theorized that electrons are going into some other dimension. So this means that our, our brain may be physical, but our consciousness is not, and that we're only half there at any one time. So in the physical sense, uh, the electrons that make us, um, and that, that, that are, are part of what makes us up, are going from the material world to somewhere else and then back again. So when our quantum field, our consciousness, is no longer burdened by the restraints of a material world existence, it is transferring to another dimension. Now, we've been hearing things like this from years out of spiritual leaders, that we are actually multidimensional beings and that our higher self, our higher state of consciousness is actually patched into, you know, you know heaven or connected to the God force. And this very well may be uh, the beginning of an explanation of how we literally are all cells in the body of God. We're all light beings. We're all interconnected energetically. So, so from that standpoint, we're, we're multidimensional beings. But we're also seeing that um, our consciousness and our brain can actually uh, be little mini multiverses, if, if you will. So not only are there several dimensions around us, we ourselves are part of that. So it, it certainly makes for interesting discussion. When you try to communicate with the other side, what are we tapping into to do that? What it appears is that the pineal gland in our brain is altering brainwave frequency. And the thought is that, you know, and, and certainly when you get brain mapped, and I've been studied and just um, it's always fun when you go with electrodes on your head and all that. But <laughs> just be careful who puts the electrodes on you. Yeah, I know, I know. It's like, you know, it's like, God, I hope they're nice guys. Um, 
Um, but what happens is we go from the, the beta state. That, that's the conscious aware state, the one that gets us up in the morning so we can write checks and go to work. We go from the beta state, then we uh, transition when we go to sleep to alpha, and then to deeper sleep is theta. And then there's another level, delta, which is like, you know, your, your brainwave functioning is like not happening at all. Um, and the theory is that on the alpha-theta border is conducive to psychic activity. That's why it's like when, when people that are doing psychic or mediumistic readings, uh, they kind of are in this daydreamy type state. You see a lot of mediums describe the feeling as, well, it's like being in a conscious daydream because that's what it actually is. So what's happening there? is that the brainwave frequency is elevating to this point to tap into a different dimension. Let's make it easy. Um, let's say we're looking at an FM radio dial and we live in, in um, 88.5 on the FM radio, radio dial and we're elevating our brainwave frequency to 101.3. Meanwhile, the other side, spirits are 107.9. They're bringing their frequency down to 101.3 to get a frequency match. Um, it's also maybe the difference between AM and FM. We live in AM radio, the other side is FM radio, and occasionally the two overlap. And that's why a lot of people say, well, why don't spirits just tell you this one? Why don't they tell you that? Because it's not texting or instant messaging. This is why um, I've redefined the term mediumship to interdimensional communication, because that's what we're doing. This is the material world reaching out and, and communicating with another dimension. So mediumship or communicating with spirits is actually interdimensional communication. Stay with us as we come back and take calls with Mark Anthony next on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, this hour, as we continue talking with our guest, Mark Anthony, we'll take your phone calls as well here on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast, our guest, Mark Anthony. Mark, what do you think the other side is? Is it energy? Is it consciousness? What is it? Uh, I think energy and consciousness are intertwined, so I think it's both. Um, you know, somebody... Uh, emailed me the other day, and I get a lot of emails like this, is heaven a place where they have like tables and chairs and restaurants? And you hear a lot of mediums say that, oh, as above, so below. Um, I think what spirits do, let, let's say that you're doing a session, and, and I did a reading one time where um, this, this mother and father came through for the person, and the father showed like horseback riding, in, in what looked like Montana, and the mother showed a vineyard in Napa. And the client said, well, gee, my father's favorite thing to do is to go horseback riding, and my mother's favorite place in the world was Napa Valley. Now, I don't believe the spirits were actually horseback riding and hanging out at a vineyard. What they're doing is they're projecting to, to you and I something we can relate to. Because, George, you and I cannot understand what it's like to live in a purely energetic state because we're currently existing in a material world state. So I think that heaven is, is kind of beyond our limited comprehension. Uh, I like what Einstein said uh, about the afterlife and, and, about, uh, and about God. He said it's like a, a four-year-old child walking into a library full of books 
and the child knows that somebody wrote the books and that there's something in them, but doesn't know who wrote them or how they got there or, or how to decipher them. So understanding that something exists doesn't necessarily mean understanding everything. And he came down to saying that, it seems to me, is the attitude of the human mind, even in the greatest and most culture toward God. We see a marvelously arranged universe obeying certain laws, but laws we only understand dimly. I like that. Yeah, he, uh, he was so far ahead of his time in, in so many ways. And, you know, there's a big debate whether or not he believed in God. He, he didn't believe in a God that sat there and, and doled out punishments and smited people and all that. He looked at God more as what you were um, referring to as, as a consciousness and as an energy. And, and that appears to be, to be what, what it is. And, and when, when we were talking earlier about biophotons and the light which is within us, you know, one of one of the the most well, everything Jesus said was profound as far as I'm concerned. Um, but when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God is within, well, you have light within us. We perceive God as the light, the light of understanding, the light of truth. When people are enlightened, that's because they're gaining a deeper and more profound understanding of something greater than themselves. And um, I I believe in the concept of enlightenment. And in I N lightened is understanding the internal light, the connection of God, which is within us all. Um, and and you know George, we see a lot of people around the world committing horrific acts and oh all that into politics. Out of control. That. It's out of control, and, and so many people are doing this in the name of God and, and all of that. The fact of the matter is, God does not create anger, bigotry, hatred, judgment, or violence. That's the ego. That's where you edge God out. And the fact of the matter is, the light of God, the understanding, the love, the energy is a pure and, and unpollutable thing. The, however, the choice we have is whether or not we're going to block our perception of the light. So while the light of God is within us and without us. It is our choice whether or not to block it. Because the people that do all these types of things are doing it out of ego, out of their own personal um, anger and judgmental and, and hatred-driven agendas, as opposed to love not only for yourself, but more importantly for those around you. Let's take some calls here for you, Mark. As they line up, we'll go to Jackie in Minneapolis to get things started. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Um, I have been totally blind for 11 years. I have terminal cancer, and I just changed oncologist. Was that a good move? Well, I'm, I'm not really a, a fortune teller, Jackie, but let me ask you this. Do you feel good with this new doctor? Very good. Then Very good. That is where you need to trust your feelings. And I'm not, not trying to pass the buck and, or sound Yoda-esque, okay? But, but we, all have, we all have abilities within us. And if you feel better, more comfortable with this doctor, and that resonates with you and brings you inner peace and a sense of satisfaction, then you've done the right thing. Because 
you know, nothing's worse than when, when you have all types of medical problems and you go into an environment where people are poking and prodding you and treating you like an experiment as opposed to a living, breathing, sensitive human being. And when you can get a competent and caring physician that is not only really good at what they're doing, but to make you feel that you're in the hands of a healer, then you're doing the right thing, Jack. Mark, this advice uh, that you give people, uh, it's more like the psychic lawyer is back again. <laughs> well, you know, um, being, being an attorney, um, I, I had to rely upon my intuition. And a lot of people that came to me, what I found, George, and, and, uh, and this is something that I, that, that, that I write about in both of my books, and something that, uh, that I'll be talking about at the Sedona Spirit Symposium in June is that grief leads to crime, which leads to grief. And what I found in my practice as an attorney and as a psychic medium is that a lot of people that engage in criminal behaviors and that are drug addicts, alcoholics, um, predatorial behaviors, in their early years, there was a death. There was an unresolved uh, uh, loss and they didn't deal with it through grief counseling or supportive family, and they're left to their own devices, which all too often turn to drugs and alcohol and, and uh, anger and rage. And so that grief can then lead someone down the path to engaging in behaviors, like getting behind the wheel of a car when you know, you've had too much to drink and then you kill somebody else. So your grief leads to crime, which then leads to to grief and it's a terrible cycle and so what I saw in my practice is not only to represent people in, in you know in court but also to get them into the proper counseling um, I see this a lot with I have a lot of uh, military personnel come to me for readings um, if guys that are suffering from post-traumatic stress uh, disorder from you know being in combat and losing uh, you know their comrades you know guys that they loved as brothers and and it's very important for them to to come to terms with these with these feelings. And uh, so, you know, anytime that my abilities of both a medium and an attorney can intersect to help people, then uh, you know, I pray to God that I'm I'm doing my job right. Well, and uh, and you are now. What happens in ten years from now? How will science try to get better answers for us about what this is on the other side? Uh, that, uh, excellent question. Uh, that's excellent. Um, well, our, our science is never stagnant. You know, I, I see a lot of the skeptics go, there is no proof for this. It's like, yeah, but what was, what were the stars before the invention of the telescope? People had these bizarre ideas that there were holes in the fabric of heaven and they were this and that and the other thing, and then the telescopes invented and we're saying, oh, wow. Or what was disease before the invention of the microscope? I mean, when the train was invented, there were, there were actually scientists who thought that the train would move so quickly it would suck all the oxygen out, create a vacuum, and kill everybody on board. And, oh, my God, you know, that was scientific fact, and then they found out that, that it wasn't. So our science is always evolving. We're getting more and more sophisticated technology. We're, you know, we're able to, to uh, notice electrons 
disappearing and then reappearing, uh, possibly going to another dimension. There's just been the discovery of gravitational waves. We, I think the 21st century, provided we don't blow ourselves into the other side <laughs> with that technology, um, is going to be one of great discovery. We're going to see uh, discoveries both without and within on the vibrational level and with uh, genetic therapies of the regeneration of cells, once again using energy, and also the quantum physicist being able to better understand what happens to the quantum field in our brain when it leaves the physical body at physical death. Next up, we've got Dr. Sleepless in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Doc. Hello, George. Hello, Mark. Anthony, you're asking all the right questions. It's so fantastic. But I wanted to see, I believe that uh, we confirmed that consciousness does not originate in the brain. But uh, therefore, my question is, what would be the conductor of consciousness? Could it possibly be the water? Since water reacts to everything and has sacred geometry in it, and stores information and has memory. Dr. Sleepless, I cannot thank you enough for that question. <laughs> um, the medical and the scientific community have been split uh, over what is consciousness, as have the spiritual community. And the, I'm going to stick with medical and scientific right now. There's three schools of thought. Number one, consciousness is the result of evolution over millions of years. The brain and nervous system underwent complex and sophisticated physical changes resulting in self-awareness. And that's nice, okay? Then number two, consciousness is not a physical action and is not controlled by physical laws. As such, it has always existed. Woohoo! Now, this is the interesting one because it means consciousness exists without a material host. In other words, a body so that means that the soul, if you will, pre-exists the body. And then the third possibility is that consciousness is the result of physical events which have always existed but are not yet understood, which could be uh, the, the so-called quantum field. So your question about water, water is, is definitely um, a key to this because, um, because water is a huge conductor of electrical activity. And water is also composed of quanta, which are energetically charged particles. So I think we're all on the same page here. It's just we don't quite know yet, but because we don't quite know yet, doesn't mean it, ha it doesn't exist. I mean, look at what, what George uh, brought up earlier is the discovery of gravitational waves. I mean, Einstein said that they existed in 19... 16, and it wasn't until uh, 2015, 2016 that we proved it. So just because we can't prove it right now doesn't mean it isn't, isn't a reality. Why are some people more tuned in than others? Tuned in in, in what, in the, the psychic sense? Yes. I think it's like, why are some people more athletic than others? Why are some more musical than others and, and uh, mathematical? Um, it may have to do with the pineal gland. Maybe some people's pineal glands are a little bit more developed, or maybe, you know, people like, you know, that, that are psychics and mediums have an extra calcite or magnetite crystal in, in their brain. Um, uh, I, I remember reading a uh, article on neurobiology that people that are highly spiritual, their brains seem to be wired a little bit differently. But we 
also know that highly intelligent people's brains are wired differently uh, because the axons in the brain, which are, are the wiring in the brain, um, you know, there, there may be more electrical activity or, or more, you know, more uh, quantum vibrations going on in some brains than others. So I think it all comes down to we're all good at different things, and, and the, that, again, ties into what you were asking, George, about intelligent design. If God, if the creative force wanted us to all be the same, then we'd be like a school of fish. Yeah. We'd all react to light and heat and, and uh, predators and stimuli the same way, but we're not. We're, we're all very different. Let's go to Gary in Santa Maria, California. Gary, go ahead. Oh, thank you, George. Sure thing. I'm going to give this my best shot here. Um, I uh, lost my... Uh, dog of uh, 17 years, 16 years, on the 18th, I was going to call in on open lines. He started taking a turn for the worse around Christmas, but I wasn't premature in, in uh, taking care of him. But that night, the whole show seemed to be uh, geared to dogs. It started off with Barry McGuire that quoted his uh, mother that said, uh, the poor dog uh, doesn't wag his own tail. And he passed uh, right after, uh, well, Cornelius called in and uh, asked that uh, you play Louis Armstrong's uh, What a Wonderful World. Yeah. And then uh, Tommy took over the phones that night. That was and, his birthday present. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, one had a birthday and the other one passes. I took a bath uh, with my with my bird dog. He was a uh, an, uh, an English pointer. His best friend was a blue jay that he found as a fledgling, um, and uh, and uh, we had the blue jay for almost twelve years before he expired. So I, in every way, he was a true bird dog. But you played. It was only 15 or 20 seconds, literally, after he took his last breath, that Tommy, right before he came on, put on the song uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Brother Is. Now, there was very few ways of consoling me that night, but between passing between the first song what a wonderful world, and then somewhere over the rainbow where bluebirds fly by Brother Is, I really got, and having a warm bath with him as he slowly passed um, was just about the biggest send-off there was. Then I had a... Uh, a slightly visitation dream where I saw his speckled nose come through two long drapes and later that morning I had made for St. Patrick's Day a uh, a corned beef steak that ended up to be corned beef, beef jerky that I had shared <laughs> with him the night before and because um, I wouldn't dare give it to anybody else. It was full of flavor. How old was he? How long did you have him, Gary? Uh, he was almost 17 years old. Wow. That, that's, that's, that's a long, long time. 
And you know, in terms of the music that that we select, it's 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 for the mood, and it uh, touched you in that uh, certain way. And uh, I'm thankful that we were a little part of that, uh, to be sure. It works. Things work in magical ways, Mark Anthony. Yes, they do. And and you know, I for for the caller, um, any being capable of the emotion of love is capable of spirit communication, and. I'm a firm believer because I've done probably 10,000 plus readings in my life. Animals come through a lot of the time. So don't despair because at when it is your appointed time to transition to the other side, I'm no way encouraging anyone to, to speed that along. Well, let's take as much time as we can before yeah, we I mean, do. We're all going to get there. What's the rush? <laughs> you know? Um, and we are. We will see these beings again. Yeah, we're we're all we're all going to transition. And you know, I'll tell you, it's it. And I, I write about that. in evidence of eternity is uh, communication with animals on the other side, uh, which is a very very um, important thing because animals. I mean, what's what's a life without our our four legged friends? You know, it's it's like you know, one of my best buddies growing up was my dog. <laughs> so. So uh, it's very comforting to know. Man, man's best friend, as they say, Mark. We're going to come back and take final calls with you in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast, our final segment with the psychic lawyer, Mark Anthony, in your calls. Mark, in the, your work as a uh, studying mediums and mediumship, what is that ability of a medium to tap into the other side? What are they doing? What we're doing is, is we're raising our vibrational frequency to where we tune into an ultra-higher uh, frequency. And as quantum physics, physics is teaching us, everything in the universe has vibrations that vibrates at higher um, levels. For example, AM radio um, vibrates at one, one level, FM radio vibrates at another, XM radio, uh, so on and so forth. And so what we're doing is we're aligning our brainwave frequency with a higher frequency, and we're tapping into the quantum field of, 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 the, um, of discarnate intelligence. In other words, we're communicating with souls. And what I've seen, George, is that the other side is a collective consciousness, and that when we separate from our body, our quantum field, our soul, is like a drop of water which then plunges into this vast, infinite ocean, yet we retain our individuality. That's God's gift to all of us, is our individuality, and we can disconnect from that. That's why I call it the collective consciousness disconnect. And, and um, these are some of the things, George, that I'm going to be discussing at the uh, Sedona Spirit Symposium which is in June, and on the Mystical Mayan Cruise. I've started um, an adventure uh, tour uh, to spiritual locations throughout the world, and I've got the Mystical Mayan Cruise from Florida aboard the uh, Royal Princess, one of the finest, most beautiful new ships in the Princess fleet. And for folks to find out more about that, just go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, and also on the Coast to Coast site, if you go to... Um, um, the information about me on Coast to Coast, because I'm going to be talking quite a bit about the science of spirit communication at both the uh, Sedona Spirit Symposium and on the Mayan, uh, Mystical Mayan Tour. All right, let's go to Jimmy, first-time caller in the state of Maine. Hi, Jimmy. Go ahead. Hey, George. How are you doing? Uh, Good, I'm Jim. actually 
started listening to your show last week. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan, actually. It's, it's a treating show. Um, thank you. Uh, I was prompted to call because I was listening to Mark talk about um, his description, um, his belief on God, how he's not like a great bearded guy sitting in the sky, and he's just like energy, which is kind of how I describe it to people when I explain my opinion of mm-hmm. God and how affected. My question uh, for you, Mark, is what do you think, or how do you think deja vu um, pertains to the energy segment that you're talking about? Like, when someone has uh, deja vu, is that part of the same energy spectrum that you're referring to? Like, how, how, what do you think of that? And I can take my, uh, my answer off there. Okay. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Jimmy, fantastic question. Um, when I was talking about a medium tuning into an ultra-high frequency of the other side, because we're communicating with spirits, a psychic ability, okay, psychic ability is when you tune into the energy of a person, place, or thing, and you can discern past, present, and future events. Um, very, very similar, because according to the quantum theorists, time has no time, so that everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen is energetically going on simultaneously. And you, as you correctly are identifying a deja vu experience, is tapping into that. I mean, how many times, you know, have we had a dream uh, of something and then the next day or a week later or whenever, you say, wait, I had a dream about that. Or you got the feeling that you had done this before or you received some type of premonition. And the theory is that that's exactly what's going on, is that you're tapping into this quantum field, if you will, that is giving you glimpses of what we deem to be future events. These other realities that are out there, do you think it is uh, also in other dimensions? You know, I I, I would like to think so. Um, you know, we've all... Because that's a strange uh, one. Yeah, that is a strange one. I always got a kick out of, uh, uh, okay, I guess I'll admit on, on world radio that I, I like Star Trek, but they would have those episodes where they'd cross over to the alternate dimension and they're all very different and all that. And who's to say? Who's to say? But but from the perspective that, that I work with, um, there is definitely or there are definitely uh, several dimensions and if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, you've got FM, AM, XM, gamma rays, ultraviolet rays. I mean, what we can perceive with the naked eye is like a, a piece of dental floss, okay? And you lay that piece of dental floss on a yardstick, and the yardstick is the electromagnetic spectrum. And we can only see one tiny strand of it. And now with the discovery of, of dark matter and dark energy, um, at best, we can only perceive, even with our current technology, 5% of the universe. So, yeah, there's definitely uh, a lot of a lot of multiverses, a lot of uh, dimensions out there. Let's go to Joe in the Bronx on our wild card line. Joe, go ahead. Hey, George, how are you? Uh, I wanted to ask Mark Anthony, um, you mentioned earlier that we're all interconnected, um, that uh, we also connect to God. Um, Each of us has trillions of cells in our body. Um, Could we also each represent a cell in God's body? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I believe that, yes, 
that, that's what, when we were talking earlier about biophotons, which are the particles of light and how our cells communicate with each other by flashing um, light to each other. Um, if God is perceived as light and light is within us and our body emits light, then that same energy will all interconnected. Now, where, where people or where humanity uh, screws things up is when we start blocking, blocking that light and not listening uh, to, to the higher messages, which is you know, basically love and peace and understanding. When you wrote Evidence of Eternity, uh, and we talked about it a year ago, it uh, still has some legs. How's it doing now? Well, I I've, um, understand it's been submitted for a Pulitzer Prize. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, I, it's funny when I got wow. the notification, I was, I was, uh, you know, I had to call Columbia University to make sure. You know, I was like, all right, which one of my friends? Somebody's not pulling a gag. Yeah, somebody, and they said no, and and uh, so it's, it's uh, up for a Pulitzer Prize, been submitted for a Pulitzer. Congratulations, Mark. Thank that's, you. That's and a great honor. Still, I appreciate that, George, and it's still holding uh, bestseller status um, um, in in three different categories. Uh, definitely in Kindle and and uh, in print uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and so it's done very very well. And um, it's now in Polish. It's going to be in Slovak, French, um, Lithuanian, and um, I got a list of, of a couple other languages. And my publisher is negotiating with some Spanish publishers as well. So it appears that uh, Evidence of Eternity, the journey of that book, has just begun. Did you ever expect it to be that wildly successful? Uh, every author, you know, when you put your heart and soul into into your work, you, you want it to be. But I'm also a realist, and um, you know, I, I I put forth my best effort, and uh, thank God every day for for uh, for the work that I'm doing and and how well Evidence of Eternity is doing. Mike in Ohio, welcome to the show, Mike. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, George. Good morning, Mark. I still get a little nervous, so hopefully I can get this big question in. Mark, um, I was wondering if you know of any research or would you suggest any that would have a correlation between, say, you know, you talk about the penile gland and uh, that being, you know, the god light or your chakra. Now, what about people that have had, say, a negative near-death experience or, say, a person that has had, like you, has had a positive near-death experience, like, how does that correlate as far as, uh, say, like, if a person physically, if their penile gland was, say, damaged as a child, maybe they had a uh, negative near-death experience, or, say, your uh, penile gland is larger because of your genealogy and your DNA, and you, you had a positive near-death experience. And then also, how would that correlate, say, with, like, uh, returning Iraqi war veterans that, say, they suck energy from their penile gland to uh, kind of counteract emotional or physical damage that they had. Um, and then maybe with Dr. Wallach, if he would suggest a, a, a nutrients that would flood the brain to get those electrons back working again and try to balance out, you know, your chakras or your, your, your gut, you know, your light center. Uh, oh. a, lot of, a lot of information, but thank you very much, Mark, and thank you, George. Thank you. Uh, Mike, we could we could do a whole show. Uh, George and I could do a whole show on your question. I think it's great. Uh, there's a lot of studies going on all over the world right now with the pineal gland, and you know, damage to the brain. We have to realize 
that the brain hosts consciousness. It doesn't create consciousness. And uh, Dr. Uh, Stuart Hameroff and um, um, Dr. Penrose from Oxford um, are explaining brain functioning as occurring in the microtubules in our brain. Long story short, each cell has a structure to it, and there's this uh, structure called a microtubule, because it looks like a tube, and quantum vibrations occur there. And the think of your brain and think of your cells as an orchestra. And all of a sudden, these quantum vibrations go off, they're orchestrated, and then they stop at given times, just like music. Impulses of sound and vibration start and then stop at strategic times, and they call that orc-or, orchestrated to objective reduction. And it is those processes which appear to create decisions and moods and feelings, in other words, consciousness. And this is a quantum field which is going on within the brain and can exist whether or not that carbon-12 resonator in the, in floating in salt water, in other words, your brain, um, has functioned or is damaged uh, one way or the other. So we are much more than what our body is, and the brain is merely the hard drive, but the information stored on the hard drive will go on after the hard drive no longer functions. Mark, do you get uh, incensed with uh, mediums who are faking it? Well, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, I mean, there, there's people that criticize me and criticize, you know, this one and that one. Um, there are charlatans out there, and I think that before, you know, people go to a medium, you know, check their reputation, see if you know anyone that's been to them. And any psychic or medium that starts telling you that you have to come on a regular basis or that your your aura is haunted and, and uh, there's a curse on you and things like that, then those are the people who are not acting from a genuine state right. and, uh, you know, in my opinion, to be avoided. And what about the medium who does it for free? That, that to me, increases one's credibility. Um, well, yes, and, and, you know, we all do, you know, I, I certainly do, um, do a lot of readings uh, for free and for charity, but never for anyone that asks for one mm -hmm. or demands it of me uh, or insults me, <laughs> okay, um, because... Um, you know, everybody wants something for nothing. And, you know, Edgar Casey did everything uh, for free, but then again, he, he died penniless, and his wife and he, that was a bone of contention that right. they had throughout their marriage. It's like, you know, why aren't you charging? Um, you know, but the fact of the matter is, as much as we'd all like to join in, sing Kumbaya, and let everything be free as we slide down a rainbow on our unicorn, um, you know, gasoline costs money, but that's a gift from God because the oil that creates it comes from the earth. Plants are a gift from God, but, you know, farmers don't work for free. Um, you know, what my auto mechanic does is a gift from God, but he doesn't work for free. And the fact of the matter is, um, you know, we have to be practical about things. And also, you know, we get what we pay for. You know, if you go into a, a Mercedes dealership and whine and complain that uh, that Mercedes should cost the same as, as a Yugo, I'm... You know, not going to happen. Yeah, not going to happen. Chris, British Columbia, Canada. Go ahead, Chris. Let's squeeze you in here. Hello. I just, um, I'm a first-time caller, but I couldn't get onto that line. Okay. Anyways, um, I wanted to talk about how the universe is not separate.
separate from us because just how you are talking to me, I am a fragment of the universe just like how you are a fragment of the universe. So a lot of people think that they're separated from, you know, God, which God is the entirety of all of existence. We are just a mere reflection of life reflecting itself within the universe. And if there wasn't any life in the universe, there wouldn't really be a purpose for rocks and stars flying around the universe and all that. Well said. Let's get your reaction. 30 seconds left. Go ahead. I couldn't have said it better myself because when we look at the universe on a quantum level, we're all composed of energetic particles all the way from the biophotons in our cells to the great infinite consciousness and light that is God. Indeed. Mark, thank you. Uh, keep in touch with us, and uh, good luck. And on your website, have uh, all your events are listed. Yes, on evidenceofeternity.com. i got the uh, New York City tour, Columbia University, and Edgar Casey Center next week, the Sedona Spirit Symposium in June, and the Psychic Explorer Mystical Mayan Cruise, which is going to be fantastic coming up in October. And that's all can be found on evidenceofeternity.com. Super. Have some fun. Thank you, Mark. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Monehood, Sean Lavasseur, Stephanie Smith, Chris Bowles, and George Knapp. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, from the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie, and welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Later on tonight, Evidence of Eternity. Make sure you're around for that part of the program. And by the way, I trust those of you who celebrate Easter and Passover had a great time. Here's what's happening. A volcano on Alaska's Aleutian Islands erupted Sunday afternoon, sending ash some 20,000 feet into the air. The U.S. Geological Survey reported that the Pavlov volcano is located about 600 miles southwest of Anchorage. The agency says the volcano, which is about 4.4 miles in diameter, has had 40 known eruptions and is one of the most consistently active volcanoes in the Aleutian arc. Is it a danger? Let's check in with renowned environmental consultant, Dr. Tim Ball. Tim, is this serious or not, this volcano? Well, no, it's really not uh, at the present time. It's it's part of the uh, most active volcanic chain in the world, the Aleutian Islands. But um, and and uh, it could have a, an effect upon the global temperatures in this way. It's um it's erupting quite vertically into the strat lower stratosphere, and when the dust gets up into the lower stratosphere, mixes with the water, becomes uh, like yellow droplets, and tends to reduce the amount of sunlight, and um, that's a factor, but um, because the air, it, it's winter time, and the, the um, stratosphere is actually much lower at this time of year. That's why this dust is getting up there at that altitude. So the combination of that, but it also adds to what's called the dust veil index, which is the general level of dust, uh, volcanic dust in the atmosphere at any given time, and um, it, will, it uh, will add to the reduction of sunlight very slightly. The other thing that concerns me, Tim, is the possibility of severe earthquakes along the western side of the United States. What do you hear these days? Well, it, um, it's actually been relatively quiet. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that the more earthquakes you have, uh, the small ones, the better. Because that means that the plates are moving by each other. And it's when the plates get locked up, that is, these 
um, the, the level of, of volcanic activity, uh, earthquake activity uh, in the, around this great ring of fire has been relatively uh, within normal ranges. And as I say, lots, lots of, um, of earthquakes are, are a good thing. It's when they don't occur, that's when you've got to start worrying. Okay, Tim, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Tim Ball. Easter, Pakistan. Islamist militants in Punjab, the country's richest and most populous province, an Easter Day bombing, killing 70 people, injuring 300, many of them women and children, Christians simply wanting to celebrate Easter in Pakistan. ISIS, by the way, has apparently killed an Indian Catholic priest, kidnapped in Yemen earlier this month. They say he's been crucified. And they're also saying these days that they plan to kidnap Israeli children and kill them as well. And Syrian antiquities experts are expressing shock at the destruction of the Islamic State group, Rot, which inside Palmyra's museum, scores of artifacts were smashed before troops drove the extremists out of that historic town. Let's check in with Dr. Jerome Corsi, noted author and Writes for WND.com. Jerry, what, this has got to stop pretty soon, Jerry. It's getting, getting out of hand. Uh, it is, uh, George. And this crucifixion of the priest, which is yet reported, it's not 100% confirmed. The Archbishop of Vienna is reporting that this Father Tom Usenal was crucified in Yemen. He was um, abducted out of a... Uh, home for the aged that was being maintained by the sisters of Mother Teresa in Yemen. A gunman came in, they killed four nuns, they abducted this priest, uh, shot up and killed various of the old people in this home. And uh, over Easter, supposedly, the priest was crucified. Now, we don't have photographs, we don't have confirmation, but it's still a chilling story, and it's again a reminder of how barbaric the ISIS terrorists can be. I mean, reintroducing crucifixion into the world, which, you know, we would like to think had been gone 2,000 years ago uh, when Jesus Christ was crucified, and the Romans, who crucified many, many people, are, uh, that practice has hopefully died away until brought back by these ISIS terrorists with this priest. It's very terrifying. Jerry, are these, they're terrorists, of course, but are they just thugs, too? Um, yeah, certainly, George, they are thugs. Uh, they're completely lawless. I mean, their abduction of young women, the raping of young women by the ISIS terrorists, uh, which is now a practice that we're seeing in Europe with the raping of women. Um, it, it's one of those politically incorrect points about uh, radical uh, Islamic terrorism is that it's barbaric to women um, in general, especially women that the terrorists consider to be their rightful prey. Uh, but this crucifixion of a priest again shows the, the, the genocide that's going on in the Middle East against Christians, uh, really wiping out Christianity in the Middle East, which is ISIS's goal, and largely unreported in the Western press are underreported for sure. I, and I've got to tell you, if state, they start trying to kidnap Israeli children and kill them, uh, I've got to tell you, they're going to have one heck of a battle with the Israeli government. 
There's no doubt about that, George, and I think the Israeli government is um, vigilant in the protection of the Israeli people. But the determination of these ISIS terrorists, the radical Islam, to eradicate um, Israel, even with Iran, whom we supposedly have this nuclear agreement firing missiles again, after the agreement was signed, saying death to Israel, written on the missiles. I mean, it's chilling. And the level of violence in the Middle East, I think, has been, I think today is the most extreme and most frightening it's ever been in my lifetime. All right, Jerry, thank you so much. Dr. Jerry Corsi, New York's Tribeca Film Festival will not show Vaxxed, a controversial film about the MMR vaccine, that's the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, According to its founder, Robert De Niro, the great actor, as recently as Friday, Robert De Niro stood by his decision to include the film by anti-vaccination activist Andrew Wakefield in next month's festival. Now, the link of the film makes between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and autism has been discredited by the organizers. Robert De Niro now says they will not show the film. In a class action lawsuit, Filed earlier this month in U.S. District Court in Columbus, Ohio, multiple men allege that Procter & Gamble's Old Spice deodorant left them with severe skin reactions, including rashes and chemical burns. The suit seeks more than $5 million in damages, claiming that 13 Old Spice products affected hundreds, if not thousands, of consumers. A wanted North Carolina man was arrested this week on charges that he failed to return a VHS tape to a video store 14 years ago. I kid you not, 37 years old, he was driving with his daughter to school. He was pulled over by police for a broken brake light, and they ran, of course, his driver's license and told them that he had an outstanding arrest warrant for not returning a movie to a store in North Carolina 14 years ago. Up next, the world according to Jim Mars. Get ready for him next on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Jim Mars with us for a couple hours. Award-winning journalist, one of our favorite guests, has more than 30 years experience with several Texas newspapers. Back in 1999, he began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level UFO courses in the nation. He's got a number of books published, including, of course, Alien Agenda, Population Control, or Occulted History as well. And we're going to talk with Jim about a lot of things tonight, but we're going to start with an incredible case of a crashed something in 1897 in Aurora, Texas. Hey, Jim, welcome back. Hey, George, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And looks like we're going to run into each other here before long because I believe you're going to be at Contact in the Desert. I believe you're going to be at UFOs within reach at uh, Big Bear Lake, right? Absolutely. And I understand that you and I may be in Dallas uh, doing something. Oh, later on this year, yeah. We, we'll keep that under our hats because we may have some real stuff to talk about as that gets closer. There's no question about that. Let's talk a little. we got lots to talk with you about tonight, Jim, but let's talk about this 1897 case in Aurora, Texas. Why does this case continue to really hit the headlines in the UFO community? Well, I'll tell you why, because number one, all through the years, is I, and actually I go back to, I could prove it because I, wrote, I drew a uh, watercolor 
about a UFO incident that happened in Loveland, Texas, and uh, I know I've still got that. I found it, so I know that I've been uh, actively investigating, looking, and studying about UFOs since at least that incident. I went back to check on that. That was like 1957. Okay, so I've been at it a pretty good while. Um, but all through that time, you know, it's always been well. They're they're just uh, misidentified aircraft, or they're secret government test craft, or you know. And of course, all that is reasonable. That's a reasonable explanation. Sure. So I always thought, wouldn't it be great if we had an incident uh, of a well-documented incident of a UFO that happened before there was any man-made uh, craft in the air? And that is Aurora, Texas, which I consider the smoking gun of the UFO issue. Because this was an incident that happened on April the 19th, 1896. This was six years before the Wright brothers flew. Uh, and also, uh, they flew in December of uh, 1903. And it was also in 1903 that there was the first recorded uh, balloon flight, powered balloon flight. Uh, of course, George, I'm sure you know that, you know, they've had balloons around for a long time. They had them in the war between the states, and they'd, but they were on, they were on a line, they, on a rope. They'd just winch them up, and they'd hang there, and they'd use them for observation. So the first real powered balloon flight that moved around was the California era, and that lifted off again in 1903. So here's a case that happened six years before there was anything man-made in the air. Uh, and then what's amazing is is that it fits into the context of what's known as the Great Airship Mystery of 1896-97. And basically what that was about was that uh, starting about, oh, the summer of 1896, this big cigar-shaped object was uh, sighted over San, uh, Sacramento, California. And then it moved north. Uh, almost to Seattle was seen. Then it was reported traveling across the northern part of the United States. I think it got as far east as Chicago, all through the latter part of 1896 and into that 97. It was seen coming down to the Midwest, various places. And then uh, in April, it had arrived in Texas, was sighted in several places here. And then, of course, on April the 19th, uh, it was reported crashed in the little hamlet of uh, Aurora, Texas, which is about 20 miles northwest of Fort Worth. Uh, the Dallas papers uh, carried the story, uh, and it's really interesting because it said uh, that uh, Aurora, Texas, about 6 o'clock this morning, the early rises of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship, which has been sailing through the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer the earth than ever before. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order because it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour. Hmm. And, yeah, well, let me stop right there. <laughs> Airspeed is like 80 or 90 miles an hour. If you're in an airplane or any kind of flying craft, if you're not going about between 75 and 85, you're not going to be able to stay in the air. So this is strange right there. Said it sailed directly over the public square, and when it reached the north part of the town, collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill, water tank, and destroying the judge's flower garden. Now, here's the clincher. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show he was not an inhabitant of this world. 
Whoa, uh, exactly. And then they buried him in some graveyard, right? Yes, they buried him in the Aurora Cemetery, which is still there today. It's a very old cemetery. It was uh, began uh, about 1861, right about the time that the war began. <clears throat> and there is a Texas State historical marker on the front of this uh, cemetery uh, talking about the spaceman that uh, w was buried there. Now, George... I got on this story back in the early 70s, and it was really fascinating to me uh, because we uh, I wrote some stories for the paper, others did. Uh, my counterpart with the now-defunct Dallas Times-Herald was a man named Bill Case, and um, we wrote about it, and we, we said, well, you know, why don't they just exhume the grave, and we'll know for sure what's there, right? That would be, be easy, except somebody did exhume it and stole it. <laughs> well, no, they couldn't exhume. We couldn't get it exhumed. We all wrote stories and said there ought to be an exhumation, and then the cemetery association got up in arms and they hired a lawyer and they said, no, we're going to, you know, sue anyone who tries to dig up the graveyard because we don't want that. Blah blah. Okay, well, it created a little bit of stir in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and so there were lots of uh, thrill-seekers going up there, driving around. So they actually put a police guard up there. The uh, town marshal, Pig Idell, uh, sat up on it during the daytime, and then they'd have a Wise County Sheriff uh, deputy come up and sit up there at night. This went on for about uh, two weeks, and then the very day that they pulled the police guard, the, the little headstone turned up missing. Okay, and it's never been seen since. Gosh. But, of course, I saw it, and I've even got photographs of it. And it's really interesting, George, because there's it was just a little sandstone rock type thing that had been chiseled out. And there's like a V-shape on its side with little circles in the middle. And uh, I really believe that it was only half of the original uh, headstone. And if you extrapolate that half to another half, you've got a saucer type shape with little portholes in it. And that's, uh, so it was really fascinating. But what's more fascinating is a few months after all this died down, uh, you know, they threatened a lawsuit. We couldn't dig in the cemetery. The headstone went missing and everybody kind of eventually lost interest. I got a call from Bill Case. He said, meet me up in the Aurora Cemetery. And I did. He had a metal detector and he said, watch this. And uh, because before, when we'd been up there, he had run this metal detector across the grave, and it registered three uh, hits of metal, one near the headstone, two near the center of the grave. <laughs> George, I still remember that because I was kidding with Bill Case. I said, yeah, that's probably his tricorder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that thing they use in Star Trek. So... This time, uh, a few weeks after the headstone went missing, he runs a metal detector over there. The grave obviously had not been disturbed. It wasn't all dug up. And there were no readings, okay? So we got down on our hands and knees, and we found three little holes, up near one near the, where the headstone had been, two in the middle of the grave. And I said, whoa, what happened here? And he said, well, I think somebody with some very sophisticated equipment uh, came, located these uh, these bits of metal, and used a core sampler to go down there and extract the metal out of this grave. And I said, what do you think did that? Do you think that was UFO researchers? And he said, no, I don't think so. And I knew he was going to say, and I agreed with him. And he said, I don't. The, the UFO researchers are not going to break the law like that. He says, I think it was the government, and and I do too. And it could have been. And it could have been, particularly since a few years later I met a woman uh, and something came up about the uh, spaceman buried in the Aurora Cemetery. And she says, uh, uh, 
She said, oh, yeah. I says, uh, said, you know, his little girl, he used to go play over there. And says, I ran into government agents in that graveyard. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. I said, okay, yeah. I said, that was probably in the early 70s, right? Thinking she was referring to the time I was there investigating. She said, no, this was back in the 50s. So, see, there's been government uh, uh, interest in that uh, uh, ever since the 50s. In fact, I think you're going to find this real interesting. I have a document <clears throat> that uh, was pried out of the government, and it's a memo uh, from uh, George C. Marshall, who was chief of staff of Roosevelt during World War II, mm -hmm. and it's dated uh, March the 5th, 1942. So this makes it just about a few days after the famous February uh, incident over Los Angeles, the great Los Angeles. Oh, that's incident. right. Yeah, I remember that. Well, in this memo, uh, if, if first off, uh, <laughs> this is pretty wild. He says, uh, this was uh, from Roosevelt to Marshall. It says, as indicated in my February the 26th memorandum to you regarding the air raid over Los Angeles, it's been learned from Army G2, that's intelligence, that Rear Admiral Anderson uh, recovered unconventional uh, uh, unidentified airplane off the coast of California. Hold on uh, for a second, Jim. We'll pick that up. That's a great story, too. Next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jim Mars with us. Jim, you were talking about the the, the episode, of course, of the lights over Los Angeles. And people, when they were shooting at that object, people could hear pings as if it were hitting something metallic. They actually heard something. Right. And uh, there were actually people that died in that. There were some people who died because of car wrecks, heart attacks, and stuff like that. Because they they start they they had a brand new weapon at that time. It's called radar, and uh, the public really hadn't heard much about that. They were keeping it secret, uh, you know. But when once the war started, they were really using it. And they actually had picked up these objects, several objects, coming uh, uh, off the Pacific. Uh, heading eastwards towards Los Angeles, and of course, this was just like a month or so after Pearl Harbor, and the whole West Coast was on high alert. Everybody had the jitters. Everybody was afraid that the Japanese might be launching a invasion, and and that was not just sheer fantasy. Uh, actually, a Japanese submarine had surfaced and shelled a, an oil refinery out on the California coast. So they got all upset. Well, they, these objects came in over Los Angeles, and they began shooting at them with uh, anti-aircraft guns about 11 at night. And this lasted well into hours till 2 or so. And some of this ordinance was falling back on the city, caused some damage, uh, et cetera. But then uh, a day or two later, the Secretary of War announced that it was just war jitters, okay? And, of course, then the war news came, kept going on and on, and everybody tended to forget about it. But as I've got this document here from uh, Chief of Staff George Marshall to uh, President Roosevelt, and he was saying the, the War Department uh, Naval Intelligence has reported uh, uh, unidentified, they recovered an unidentified aircraft off the coast of California that had no bearing on conventional explanation. And it said, further investigation revealed the Army Air Corps also recovered a similar object in the San Bernardino Mountains east of Los Angeles, which cannot be identified as conventional aircraft. Whoa, so there was really something going on. But, George, the thing that really caught my attention was the, the, down at the bottom, there's a little further paragraph, 
And uh, by the way, all these documents are stamped top secret. I think they've probably been declassified now, but <clears throat> obviously they don't want anybody here to see this. And at the very bottom, Marshall had written, I have further ordered uh, a thorough investigation of all War Department files re re regarding unconventional aerial phenomenon reported since 1897, the very year of the spaceship crash. So I think that they, so there were certain people at high levels of the government who knew uh, what was going on. So... I've been tracking that story ever since 73, and here's what's really fascinating is that I know uh, back in the 70s when I first made a trip to Roswell, uh, Roswell is, is actually kind of a small little town, and uh, nobody out there at that time wanted to admit or talk about UFOs. You know, they acted like, wow, we don't know what you're talking about. And because it was just so out of the ordinary and considered so crazy by so many people, of course, all that's changed now, right? <laughs> if you go out to Roswell today, you'll find a big UFO crashed into the side of Walmart, and there's aliens up and down the street. They finally figured out that uh, maybe they should be capitalizing on this. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I think it's really interesting that the little, little town of Aurora, um, uh, has now uh, set a, a date for uh, uh, April the 16th called the War Alien Encounter. And they're picking up on this, and they're now, uh, they're the, the actual the city is now willing to talk about it. In fact, they have a pretty good roster of people coming in to speak that day. It's only going to be a one-day event, 10 to 4. Um, I'll be there to kick it off and show a uh, DVD about uh, the Aurora crash. Uh, interestingly enough, the keynote speaker will be Travis Walton. Oh, love the guy. Yeah, Super. I know you, you and Walton are good friends. He's going to be there uh, to talk about uh, his experience as well as uh, other UFOs. Uh, Nick Redford, who I, you know, mm -hmm. another friend of yours and ours, mine too, uh, is going to be talking about famous Texas UFOs other than uh, uh, Aurora. Uh, the cute and vivacious Tui Snyder is going to give an overview of the whole Texas airship mystery. And a, uh, Stephen Androsco is going to be talking about the real cowboys and aliens, you know, uh, not the movie that we Good seen. mix of people. Yeah, Jeez. and Noe Torres, who I believe you know. Oh, sure. Del Rio. UFO. So they've really got it lined up. And uh, uh, they're going to, oh, this is cool. They're going to have it at the MD Resort which is a really, really nice place right there in Aurora. And then they're going to have a free shuttle bus to take people at their own leisure, at their own time, to the crash site and to the cemetery where the little pilot was buried. Is it eerie when you walk those sites thinking of what had happened years ago? Well, it kind of has been for me, especially in the cemetery, because the cemetery is a really old cemetery. In fact, you find uh, tombstones there, markers for Confederate war veterans, things like that. And But it's really, it's, it's a peaceful thing. It's up on the hillside, and you can see all around the countryside. That always interests me, too, because you can tell that if something's crashing to earth, it would hit at the highest point, and, and that's it, okay? Um, 
But here's what's really wild, and we, I know you don't want to spend all your time on the road, but uh, uh, it started back in the 70s, and I've been keeping up with that for years. And, and frankly, uh, George, I, I've always been a little undecided. I, I thought there was enough going on there that indicated something must have really happened. Mm -hmm. But then there's, you know, a lot of the people, well, they live out in the country, and they are out in the country because they want to be left alone. Well, I mean, did you have doubts? Oh, yeah, yeah, because at the, especially back in the 70s, what, spaceman, spaceship crashed here? Well, you know, what? <laughs> but uh, but I'll tell you something, but then when the headstone went missing, and then when the metal in the grave went missing, and then I was able to, <coughs> whoa, excuse me, I was able to uh, actually interview three uh, old, old citizens there who uh, had been there. One of them, Robbie Hansen, said, no, it didn't happen, it's just a big joke, you know. Well, by her own account, though, she didn't even live in Aurora. She lived way outside somewhere, and her story was that somebody came by, rode by, and told her dad about it, and he laughed and said, oh, that old Judge Proctor, he's such a joker. And so based on that, she said, no, it didn't happen, it was just a hoax. But then there was Mary Evans, who was a young girl at the time, about 12, and she said she actually heard this boom, heard this crash, and that her parents all ran into town to see what had happened, but she was too young, they wouldn't let her go. She said, but they came back and they were all talking about uh, this crash and all this metal debris that had been laying all around. So that would indicate it probably really did happen. But then I actually talked to a fellow named Charlie Stevens, uh, who actually had witnessed the whole thing. He was a young boy, about uh, 13 or 14, and it was early in the morning, and he was out with his dad doing chores and uh, saw the thing going over and said it was sputtering and kind of drifting towards the earth. He said it, it, it seemed to him like it, it had some problem. And then he heard the crash up in town, boom, and they saw smoke going up. <clears throat> and this is, this is a little... Uh, bit of his story that kind of tells me he's got to be telling the truth. That something happened. That's yeah, right. well, here's the thing, George. If he was just making up something, what would he say? He'd say, well, I ran out of town. I saw a little alien. I saw this. I saw that. Sure. No, really no. juice, make it juicy. And make it really juicy. <laughs> but instead, he said he wanted <laughs> he wanted to run in town, see what had happened. But his dad said, no, son, we have to finish the chores. And, uh, you know, being a Texan and uh, living out in rural Texas, I can assure you in 1896, if you didn't take care of the chores, you didn't eat. <laughs> you know? So to me, that was a very real thing that they, they had to finish the chores. So... Uh, that's the, that's the Aurora thing, and now there's been some scientific uh, uh, examination. They have found, um, using ground-penetrating radar, well, first let me say that the debunkers have always said it was a hoax. It never happened, and therefore there's no grave, therefore there's no crash debris anywhere. Yeah, it right. Just, you know, oh, and the Judge Proctor did not have a windmill, okay? Well... Scientifically, we now know, because we use ground-penetrating radar, that there is a grave, a short grave at that site, because the ground's disturbed at those levels, okay? We also found the uh, footing for a windlass, which is a derrick or a tower uh, that Judge Proctor used to uh, operate the sump for his pump, okay? Now, so it's true, apparently he did not have a windmill on top of it, but he did have a tower, and that apparently is what the object struck. But the key thing to me <clears throat> is that we have found little bits of molted aluminum, like little... Like uh, aluminum, and, and aluminum is not natural. No, no, it's, it's fabricated metal, yeah. And, and so 
you got these little BB-sized little pieces of metal embedded in the trees and in rocks around the crash site. And the scientists say, well, that's an indication of a big explosion there. And I remember back in the 70s, I interviewed Brawley Oates. Uh, they owned the property there. And he'd been there since before 1940, and he said there hasn't been any explosion here. So something happened before 1940. And as you said, uh, George, uh, aluminum, uh, number one, what we find is the, the composition of this aluminum is not like aluminum produced today, all right? although it is aluminum. But also, I went and did a little bit of research on aluminum. Aluminum has only been uh, being made like less than 10 years before 1896. And in 1896, it was, aluminum was so rare that it cost more than gold. <laughs> so, you know, I am now pretty convinced that there really was some sort of craft they crashed in Aurora, Texas, six years before the Wright brothers flew. And uh, I think it'd be a great opportunity with the city uh, backing this thing as they are for people uh, around Texas and North Texas area, or even some of you folks that are listening in other places, you can get down. Uh, you ought to come down for this day of, uh, and learn about the great Aurora spaceship crash. Somewhat, somebody somewhere has the bones of a little alien. <laughs> Probably in Area 51, right? Yeah. Somebody, you know, I've always thought, Jim, that these multi-billionaires would collect things like that, like they might have the artifacts of the Anunnaki. And, and right. I, I just think, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is in some guy's house. Well, hey, we know where that is. That's in the government warehouse, right? I saw that in the movie. <laughs> well, another Indiana Jones is coming out. You kind of remind me of him. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I've been accused of uh, wearing an Indiana Jones hat, but anyone who's known me for a long time realizes that Indiana Jones copied me. That's right. You you door. had it first. Yeah, Jim, we got a couple minutes, and we're going to talk again uh, next hour and take some calls. But I want to ask you about something we're hearing, and I think you've been doing some work with this. Has has our government our government applied for an, a patent on the? Ebola virus vaccine and something to do with medical marijuana. I'm, I'm just hearing something weird. Why our government would be interested in a patent on this? Right. Well, you know, we're supposed to be so scared of Ebola, uh, and uh, and yet they they're taking out a, a patent on certain forms of Ebola. You know, why would they want to be in charge of that? It makes me wonder. Uh, and I suppose it's so that they can claim ownership so they can test some to find out, you know, how to find a cure. But the one that really gets me is that uh, uh, here so many states have now legalized marijuana, uh, but the federal government still has still has the laws in the books against it. And, and yet, uh, back in, the, this was all, uh, the details are in my book, um, um, Population Control. Back about 2002, uh, naming the patent holder as the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the government suddenly <laughs> took out a patent on medical marijuana. And it's like, well, now that the government's got their fingers in it, well, then maybe they, you know, maybe that's why they relaxed a little bit on these laws. But uh, but now I see that it may even be a worse thing than we're thinking about because. Now there are two large pharmaceutical corporations uh, who have um, applied to the government to study uh, 
medical marijuana to, uh, to see that if it might indeed have some health benefits, as so many people have claimed for so many years. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you go back, you'll find in the early 1930s, when the federal government and Congress, uh, uh, in their infinite stampedingness, uh, outlawed marijuana, the only person that actually came and spoke before the Congressional Committee in favor of marijuana was a representative of the American Medical Association. And he argued, he said, hey, this has been in our pharmacopoeia for years. You know, why are you trying to outlaw it? But we could go into that whole thing. Well, it helps fight cancer. It's got all kinds of medicinal purposes. Exactly. So now these two pharmaceutical giants have said, okay, we're going to study it to see if it's medicine. Well, now the FDA steps in and says, okay, now wait a minute. If they, uh, if these medical, if these pharmaceutical corporations are going to study it as a medicine, then it must be a drug. And therefore, you know, now it's going to be illegal <laughs> now to have it because uh, the two pharmaceutical companies are going to be trying to get a right. lack on it. So it, it's it's just the whole thing's insane. Everything but, seems to be insane this year. Everything seems to be upside down. Are you feeling that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the, the good news, George, is that, you know, think back to the most probably the most turbulent and trying time of your life. And that was when you were a teenager, right? Uh-huh. And what's happening with teenagers? They're growing up. And it's a painful experience, but we all go through it, and we all get through it, and we end up being better people as adults, you know, for having to put up with those tough uh, years of being a teenager. And I think that that's what's happening here with us as a nation. We're going through some really strange and tough things right now, but if you really look around, there's so many good things happening, so many people waking up, so many people listening to George Norrie and other people, you know. Uh, and I think, uh, on the whole, we're actually progressing. That's why uh, something tells me we're going to see uh, a lot of attendance at the Aurora Spaceship thing on uh, April the 19th and at uh, uh, the Ozarka uh, UFO Conference, which is uh, that's, that's coming up uh, uh, already. That's, uh, that uh, used to be put on by the late Dolores Cannon. Exactly, yeah. and that's coming up on April the 8th through the 10th. And then uh, you and I are going to be together out of contact in the desert. And then we're celebrating my birthday out there. Oh, is that the deal? Uh-huh. Can I have a cake? I, I don't know what Tommy's got planned. He's got something planned. Well, tell Tom that he's got to have some cake beer. All right, we're going to come back in a moment. We'll uh, continue chatting with Jim Mars. We'll get his uh, take on the state of the planet. And we'll take your calls with him, too. And our special guest of this hour, Jim Mars, talking about all kinds of things. Next up, we're going to ask him uh, his take on just what's happening on this planet right now. So stick around and your calls, of course, on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jim Mars with us. Jim, you know, I still don't know what's happening in the, with the presidential election. I mean, I thought uh, on the Democratic side, uh, Hillary was a shoo-in, and though she's headed for the delegate count, Bernie Sanders had an incredible weekend, uh, so that thing to me is kind of up in the air. And then the Republican, I still think it's going to be a brokered convention in Cleveland. What do you think? Well, that's what they're working for, and that's, uh, uh, that's kind of makes a travesty out of the uh, Democratic process, I think. Uh, and But I have good news for Hillary, okay? Uh, I wanted to remind her that Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison before he got to be president. So, 
mention, August 19, 2021, uh, UFOs Within Reach at Big Bear Lake in California. And uh, I thought you were going to be there, but I found out. I'm there, I'm there via Skype. Yeah, so I hear, is it true that you're going to be in some cave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. Um, I hope they have a good uh, connection down there, wherever that might be. I know that, yeah. But, hey, I see that your, uh, your partner in crime, he's gonna be Dan Heiser, he's definitely going to be there. And uh, the inevitable Chase Klutsky, uh she's a live wire. And then they've got a pretty good line up there, there too, you know. If you haven't noticed, uh, our friend Nick Redford and Stanton Freeman are all going to be there. Kathleen Martin, Mike Barra. Uh, Jason uh, Martell. Oh, Jason's a great guy. You know, when we were at Big Bear uh, in the winter, uh, Tom had uh, coaxed me into getting a heavy, heavy coat. He said, George, this is colder than St. Louis, where you've got all your coats. Because, you know, just in Los Angeles, I just got light jackets, Jim. You, you don't so, need a coat. Well, so, so I had to go out. I bought a coat. I, I, I bought it online, had it shipped to the network. And I had this coat for Big Bear, and I got to tell you, I could have walked around in my T-shirt. <laughs> well, I tell you what, the reason I'm looking forward to Big Bear is because it's going to be in August, and I want to tell you, North Texas in August is really not the place to be, particularly if you want to be outside. All right, let's take some calls for you, uh, and and before we do, well, one more thing about this broken down system. Yeah. Do you have any predictions? Well. It's weird. Let me say this. I have kind of changed my opinion upwardly on Donald Trump. Early on, I wasn't too impressed with him because, you know, number one TV personality, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, flamboyant businessman, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing was looking into his background, he's got such close ties with Israel, the Zionists, and with the Clinton family. And I was just, I was really afraid that he was going to be put in there as a spoiler. In other words, this still could happen. We get to the Republican National Convention and the old guard says, no, no, he's just too volatile. He's he's too crass. We can't have him. And so they end up choosing somebody else. Then Trump, even though he said he won't do this, he would probably say, well, you know, the people are behind me. He said, I'm going to run as a third-party candidate. If he does, that's going to split up the The Republican conservative vote, and Hillary gets in. Uh, So that's what I've been afraid of. But I want to tell you something. Uh, After uh, reading some stuff from people who are close to Trump, and then from looking at his uh, rallies, which tend to be average folks, good folks, with no big problem, except for the pro-Hillary, pro-leftist people that are, are causing all the violence and then trying to, you know, throw that off on him. And then I, I, I think you've had uh, that Oates fella on your program before that does the reverse speech. Yeah, David Oates. Yeah, David Oates. And uh, and when I and look at all the material he's got, and uh, all the other candidates, when they say something in, the, in reverse speech, they're somehow <laughs> or hiding something. And Trump, he just, he's exactly what he says he is, you know. Reverse or forward or backward, he's the same, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. And, of course, they'll say, well, it's maybe too radical. It may be blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, but, hey, look, folks, <laughs> you know, the we, the Republicans, you go, you go back to uh, uh, the, the first Bush administration, 
administration, then you got uh, a Democratic administration under Clinton, and then you've got another Republican under George Bush Jr., and then you've got uh, uh, Obama. Uh, holy cow! You know that both parties have had their chance, and we're still in a mess economically, militarily. You know, in bombing people all around the world. So we we definitely need a change, and and uh, so it's going to be wild. It sure is. Yeah, I've been reading Seymour Hersh's book about the dark uh, side of Camelot. Yeah, and I got to tell you, the, the things that went on in in 1960 with Kennedy to defeat Nixon were absolutely unbelievable. I mean, buying West Virginia, buying Chicago, working with the mob. I mean, it was incredible stuff, Jim. Yeah, and here's what's creepy to me and scary, is that all that took place when there were paper ballots that yes. could, could be recounted and could be checked. Today, with these uh, computer voting machines, uh, you know, the hackers have a field day, uh, and there's no guarantee that any of our votes are being countered properly. Oh, that's true. Okay, let's go to the phones and start with Mike in Montana. Hey, Mike, welcome to the program. Good evening, George. Good evening, Jeff. Howdy. Uh, it's kind of interesting you're talking about Dallas there. My question is, um, Mr. Morris, do you believe... Uh, what's your opinion about Jack Ruby, and do you believe he was forced to kill Oswald? Ah, this is right down your alley, Jim. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't think I could do any better than to paraphrase what he said uh, at one of the few opportunities that he had to be interviewed uh, after he shot Oswald, and uh, he got, uh, they ordered a new trial, and so he had to go back to court um, for the new trial, and he was granted a new trial, but it never happened because he died of uh, cancer before that. But when he showed up in court, some of the local TV crews were there, and one of them interviewed him, and, and he is still there on sound and film, uh, I believe, with Channel 11 in Fort Worth, and he said, the true facts of what has occurred will never be brought before the American people uh, because of the people that have so much to lose. Uh, you know, by telling the truth. And the interviewer said, Jack, you mean people in high offices? And he said, yes. So there you go, folks, right from the mouth of Jack Ruby. He did what he was ordered to do. But we, and I keep in mind that for years after the assassination, the official government story was that uh, Jack Ruby had no connection to anybody. He was just... He knew Oswald. Oh, of course. Now we know that he and Oswald were in touch. Uh, we know that he had worked with the mafia. He, he was not a made mafia guy because he was Jewish, but he was worked for the mafia. He even ran messages for Al Capone in Chicago as a youngster. So he was totally uh, under control by the mafia. And when they told him he was going to have to go into the police station and kill Oswald, he didn't want to do it. In fact, uh, I'm convinced that there is evidence to show that he tried to warn people about that. Uh, he, he even called the Dallas dispatchers the night before and said, you got to change the uh, transfer agreement because we're going to kill him. And yet they didn't. They, wow. they still did the same thing. And then I've always been amazed at when they brought Oswald out to the basement of the police station and here's all these newsmen, a whole crowd of mm -hmm. people, and all this hubbub going on. They got one hand handcuffed to one cop and the other hand handcuffed to another cop, and he spread eagle walking yeah. through there. So he can't. A perfect target. Perfect. And I worked around police for years and years and years, and I'm seeing them handcuff people with their hands in front of them. I'm seeing them handcuffed with their hands behind them. I'm seeing them handcuffed to radiators or a car handle or something so they can't get away. But I, that's 
that's the only instance I can think of when they handcuff somebody's spread eagle and walk them through a potentially dangerous situation. And wasn't Jack Ruby interviewed by the then columnist Dorothy Kilgallen, who died herself? The whole thing was weird. Yeah. Well, you just hit the nail on the head, George. The whole thing is weird. It's weird from start to go. They uh, Number one, they started off violating Texas law. Uh, at that time, there were no laws against uh, assassinating the president, and so it fell under homicide laws in Texas. And under the law, you couldn't move the body until there had been a coroner's inquest. Well, the coroner shows up at Parkland Hospital, and the Secret Service, uh, drew guns on him, cursing, hollering, screaming, said, this is the president, we're taking him out of here. And he said, but that's not the law. And uh, later they said, well, they had been told to do that by Lyndon Johnson. Well, if that's the case, then isn't it ironic and isn't it something that one of the first actions that Lyndon Johnson took upon becoming president of the United States was to violate the laws of his own state? Amazing stuff. Yeah. Next up, Lakeland, Florida. Hello, Gordon. It's your turn. Hey, um, thanks for uh, taking my call, sure. um, and uh, George. Uh, I have a theory about what could be done to settle the problem between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump's use, uh, said something about my wife. And I'm trying to pitch this, and it's not real popular. Uh, now, a lot of the talk show hosts are telling them to knock it off because, you know, I'm one of the conservatives that don't want there to be infighting and hand the, the thing over to Hillary. Mm -hmm. but, but now, I have a proposal that I think might work, and I want to run it by y'all. Both men claim to be Christians, and if they do, then they should obey Jesus, where he said three things. One, love your friends. Two, love your enemies. And this is a big one. Three, if you have a complaint or a grievance, go to your brother privately in Matthew 18, 15. Don't go to the public and stir it up. Go to him privately, discreetly, and if that don't work, drag one or two other people with you as witnesses so that can be, things can be established. And I've been trying to pitch this to everyone, and I think I'm getting persecuted because I'm a Christian and people are treating me like I'm a nobody. Of course, except y'all. And um, y'all got know me, Gordon Watts from Lakeland. I mean, everyone knows me. So I want to run this by y'all. Is this a good idea or what? Wouldn't hurt, Gordon. It wouldn't hurt, especially with what's going on. I mean, I've never seen a campaign where they yank each other's wives in on the thing. Yeah. Uh, Gordon, I, I think you have a great idea there. But see, you're operating on the assumption that uh, this is a serious uh, political campaign between serious people who want to serve the country. You know, the, what we're witnessing is a dog and pony show, and uh, it's all about ratings, and it's all about who can one-upmanship and everything else. It's about everything that's probably wrong. With it's the a media circus. Yeah, exactly. And they and they play to that. You know, it's just like in the media. If you, okay, if it's a if it's a reality TV show. Please understand, it's never reality, okay? There's always a food truck on the other side of the hill or cameras in their, in their face, okay? But So they have to do outrageous stuff to draw an audience and, and, and uh, build up the, the ratings and everything. But, uh, Jordan, let me ask you this. Do you ever watch uh, the uh, World Federation of Wrestling? Oh, oh, yes. Well, not real often, but I see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah, not real often because you know it's rigged, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, shows this political system. But it's great entertainment show. Oh, yeah, it's a great dog and pony show. Body slams to the middle and all that. Right. All right, next up. Thanks, Gordon. Let's go to Dave in Seattle, Washington. Hey, David, go ahead. 
object, which they did, and the whole town was soon aroused. <laughs> Can you imagine? What is it, Joe Bob? I don't know. Shoot at it. Now, George, you can see why they don't just come and land. That's right. Or obliterate us. Andre in Dallas, Texas is with us now. Andre, go ahead. Hi, Jim and George. How you doing? Go ahead, Andre. Hey, Jim, when is that event going to be in Aurora with uh, Travis Walton? Because I'm definitely going to be there. Yeah, that's uh, that's that Saturday, uh, April the 16th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And, uh, it's a one-day one event, right? I'm sorry? It's a one-night, one-day event. A, yeah, just one day because, see, this is the first time the uh, city of Aurora has ever acknowledged all this. You know, in the years past, uh, uh, most people there didn't, didn't really want to talk about it. But, hey, this is a new time. It's a new century. People are a little bit more open. So uh, that town's getting behind it. So I'd advise you to look at their website, um, the uh, uh, gov, and um, and also you can check Vortexes. You should put a link up with your your, your website, Jimmy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be sure and check. Yeah, you can check my website. That's jimmars.com, Oddly enough, <laughs> and uh, but uh, yeah, check with Vortexes, V-O-R-T-E-X-A-S dot net, and that's got some information on there. And you might want to go ahead and, and sign up early so you'll be sure and, and get on the uh, the lunch uh, luncheon that they're planning. How are you doing at airports these days, Jim? Uh, how am I doing at airports? Yeah, don't you have, haven't you had some TSA issues before? Oh, I always have. But you know what? Here's something weird. I don't understand it. Uh, I used to just kind of give them a hard time, not, not too hard, because <laughs> they would shoot you, I guess, or certainly make you miss the plane. Uh, yeah, they would shoot you. Uh, you know, I, oh, for example, one time, this one of these TSA guys is groping all over me and asked me all these questions. I said, hey, I said, uh, how come you guys aren't down on the border stopping all those people from coming across? He kind of it's like a slap in the face. He looked at me, he came, and he smiled. He said, you know, I've wondered the same thing. We're going to come back and take final questions with Jim Mars on Coast to Coast AM. Next hour, Mark Anthony joins us. We're going to talk about evidence of eternity. I'm looking forward to that, but we're going to come back in a moment and take more calls with Jim Mars here as we talk about many things going on on this planet. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jim Mars with us. We're going to get to your calls as well in our final segment here. Jim, I want to ask you about drinking water. Are they still pelting fluoride in the water all over the country? Oh, yes. But now there's beginning to be fights with uh, different uh, city councils over this. Uh, and yet, uh, as all the evidence comes forward, it, sodium fluoride, in fact, I have a photograph of sodium fluoride that was sold back in the 1920s, and it says clearly on the label, it says uh, rat poison. Poison, yeah. yeah. Or you see back a skull with the X on it, right? Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> wait a minute. So why are they putting poison in our water? Well, it turns out that uh, sodium fluoride was a byproduct of the uh, aluminum manufacturing process, and that it was uh, so nasty that uh, they were prohibited from dumping it in the rivers uh, or the oceans. Uh, and then they also found out during World War II, the, the German Nazis found that, that by putting just a little dab of sodium fluoride in the water of the concentration camps, that it kept the inmates kind of dulled down and passive and non-resistant, you know? So 
makes you wonder why are they putting it in our water today? And about three quarters of the water supply of the United States, especially in the big cities, is they're putting sodium fluoride in the water. Why? Well, because uh, there was some people connected to uh, the aluminum industry uh, that were uh, uh, did a study, and they seemed to indicate that uh, just a little bit of sodium fluoride in the water might prevent uh, some tooth decay by children, mostly male, between the ages of 6 and 12. So just trying to reach that one little six-year uh, gap of people, uh, they, they now put in all the water supply everywhere. The same stuff the Nazis put in to keep people dumbed down. Keep them dumb. You know? Breaking stories, by the way. Hijacked Egypt airplane just lands in Cyprus. That's all we know right now. Gosh, it never ends, Jim. Well, at least they landed. <laughs> yeah, some of them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope they get off okay. Let's go to Roger in Delaware now. Roger, go ahead. You're on with us. Hey, I think the whole uh, Hillary Clinton thing and John Podesta is amazing. You know, in the last few days, we've been hearing more and more about that. Last night on Coast, they had Tom DeLonge, the rock star mm -hmm. of the band Blake 182. It almost sounds like he's a youth ambassador for this. But um, I mean, we were just talking about the fluoride, and it leads me into chemtrails, you know. Um, I mean, I've heard the uh, thing on coast before. If, they, if they're not drinking it from the drinking water, maybe we'll rain it down on them. And I was curious. I, I recently had someone who was a um, one from one, one of the various UFO reporting centers told me that the late, great Dr. Roger Lear thought that the chemtrails were somehow related to the alien abduction phenomenon. And I do believe they're definitely related to the UFO, to the orange oil phenomenon. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you guys think that there is a UFO chemtrail connection of any kind. Well, I, I tend to think there is, although I can't put my finger on it. But one reason I tend to think there is is that uh, uh, several years back, a group of uh, Royal Air Force uh, people got together. They were concerned about chemtrails, and they did a study. And they found, uh, counting all the chemtrails uh, and the airplanes that they could account for in Europe, in North America, in uh, Australia, in Canada, they figured out that it would take something like 25,000 uh, airplane flights a day to produce those chemtrails. And, folks, there's not that many pilots. <laughs> they can fly, you know, uh, big, huge, wide-bodied jets up in the upper atmosphere. And then I, too, have seen a couple of photographs that uh, people were trying to take of a chemtrail plane, and uh, oddly enough, here's the chemtrail, and it's moving along, but there doesn't seem to be anything at the head of it. And in another photograph I have in my files, there's like a little round object. So uh, there is a thought that, yeah, maybe it's connected to the UFOs. Uh, and that gets really scary because I had uh, one of the uh, remote viewers that was in the Army, one of their senior remote viewers, uh, who got real interested in or concerned, I should say, about uh, chemtrails. So he took a remote view look of what it was, and he said the only way he could express what he got about what these chemtrails were about is the term terraforming. If you know what that means, mm -hmm. that means changing the environment That's of the right. planet. Nick in Michigan, now you're up with us, Nick. Go ahead. Good, good evening, gentlemen. Hi. Uh, Howdy. So, George, uh, I originally called regarding the Centers for Disease Creation and Promotion. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, and well, these are things that we need to look into. And here's what's really interesting is that John Rappaport, I certainly recommend him. He's a good journalist. And I also am I'm friends with uh, Dr. Farrell. I certainly would uh, recommend him. And what's really interesting, George, is that those two, plus a lot of plethora of others, have been following the same investigative trail that I have. And what's really interesting is, is we all seem to be coming up with the same answers, the same conclusions. We're going to post on our Twitter feed, by the way, Jim, a picture of what could be that alien headstone. Uh, it, it's it's weird looking. I mean, clearly it looks like a spaceship on the headstone. Strange. Uh, where would I find that? We uh, we will post it on our Twitter feed at coasttocoastam.com. Okay. All right? All right. You're in high technology now, aren't you? Yeah, you know, I, I finally learned that if I turn nine on the dial, I can reach the emergency line. I love it. <laughs> All right, let's go to Fred in uh, Clarendon, Texas now. Fred, you're on with Jim Mars. Go ahead. Howdy, George and Jim. Hi. Howdy. A couple of items, if I might. Uh, first of all, I was a student of Jim's. Back in the 80s, I was convalescing from brain surgery, and I took that course on the assassination of President Kennedy. Well, perfect. And uh, well, did you learn anything? He's one journalist that I have uh, a great amount of respect for, and and so therefore I'm given. I've been a skeptic about these UFOs, but if he sees something in there, then there may be something to it. As a matter of fact, uh, me and a friend of mine, we went out to that cemetery in Aurora, but. Uh, there was no grave marker there, and there also happened to be a great big old rattlesnake found himself on one of the graves that was in the area where we thought that the grave might be, but we never could find it. Have they, have they intentionally hidden that grave? Uh, I think so. Uh, as I said earlier uh, in the program, I think that either the Cemetery Association took it up and, and put it away somewhere so they wouldn't have an inordinate amount of people traipsing through their cemetery, or it's entirely possible that the government, who, I, if you'll remember I, earlier in the program, I mentioned the 1942 uh, memo from uh, George Marshall, which said they've been looking into this stuff since the crash of 1897. So I think they may have, may have been the government taking it up to maintain the UFO secrecy. But hey, I appreciate and applaud your skepticism. We should all be very skeptical, but but uh, make sure you do it all the way around. Make sure you are as skeptical of official pronouncements as you are of people uh, making their claims. By the way, if you need to find our Twitter feed, it is at coasttocoastam.com up there at the uh, lower left, and uh, you'll see it up there, and you can just take care of it that way. Why did I do that popping sound? Oh, no, that was cute. Let's go to Dave in uh, Kauai, Hawaii. Hey, David, go ahead. Hey, Jim, how's it going? You guys are awesome. Thank you, David. Thank you. I got a quick question about um, back to the Kennedy subject. Uh, are you familiar with the gemstone files? Oh yeah, very much so. In yeah. fact, I uh, in fact years ago, I think I while I was still working for the newspaper, I I tried to track uh, and verify as much as that information as possible. And uh, for example, this might interest you uh, in the uh, Gemstone Files. It says that uh, Clay Shaw, who was of course uh, prosecuted for the Kennedy uh, thing in the uh, Jim Garrison investigation in New Orleans. They said that he was a a member of this uh, 
this uh, commercial, central commercial on Bell or whatever it is, World Trade Centers, that was uh, headquartered in Italy and it in, involves people in, in Canada. And so I, I went, actually went to a library and found a 1962 uh, city directory uh, for New Orleans. And uh, sure enough, uh, Clay Shaw lists himself as a board member of Permindex, this uh, mysterious uh, organization that, as you well know from the Jim Stones files, was named as one of the orchestrators of the assassination. So, uh, yes, I found a lot of things. I I'd have to say I could not verify everything in the Jim Stones files, but I could verify uh, a whole lot, and it was, it was correct. Very correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you know anything of the history of Jacqueline Kennedy marrying Aristotle Onassis and why, if it was a forced marriage, according to the Gemstone files, there was some mysterious things happening there with her. Right. Well, from what I know about it, I don't think it was a, uh, a arranged marriage because they had kind of been carrying on with each other even before Kennedy got killed. I think this is a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend <laughs> because the, uh, you know, there's, uh, there is uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that there was CIA involvement uh, in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and who was one of the biggest enemies of the CIA was Aristotle Onassis. In fact, back in the 50s, uh, when he was trying to uh, get ahead in the shipping business, uh, there were CIA operatives attacking his ships uh, off the coast of South America. So I think this was a case of where she went to the one person in the world that she she felt like could probably keep her safe from the CIA. What an incredible, strange world we live in, Jim. Very strange. My God. Ryan in St. Louis, first time caller. Let's squeeze you in, Ryan. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, George, Jim, did either one of you see a program on the History Channel uh, last November when they were talking about the Kennedy assassination? This man out of Australia, he came up, did an expose on it, and he determined that the killing shot of, of Kennedy was done accidentally by a Secret Service person or CIA person in the rear vehicle behind Kennedy's car. He, they heard some gunshots. He reached down on, on the floor, pulled out. A rifle, when he did, their, the car lunged forward because they uh, they were trying to get Kennedy away from the scene, and yeah. he pulled the trigger and, and, and shot him in the back of the head. Yeah, I, I heard that and saw that, and, and Jim, I don't think that's what happened. Yeah. I think that it was a triangular shoot, and uh, the, they got him from three different angles, and the kill shot came from the front, not the back. And, uh, gosh, I wish we'd get to the bottom of it, huh? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, let me disabuse you of that. This this was a theory that came in, uh, out, not from Australia, but actually from some gun expert here in the United States. Uh, and then it was turned into a book. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, the allegation was that a Secret Service agent uh, had an AR-15 and it was going to return fire uh, on the book deposit story against Oswald, but he slipped and he fell back and the gun actually 
accidentally went off and he hit Kennedy in the back of the head. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's all totally false and totally ludicrous. Um, even though the major media made a big deal about it, and this, this, here's a tip off, folks. If Time, Newsweek, NBC, CNN, CBS, if they all make a big deal about something in the Kennedy assassination, you can probably write that off. <laughs> you got that right. Hey, Jim, uh, keep in touch, and I'll see you at uh, Joshua Tree and then uh, Skype and everything else, okay? Right. Don't, come to Aurora if you can. That would be nice if I can get away. It's <laughs> not too far. I'm in St. Louis right now. Thank you. Jim Mars, of course, he is one of a kind. By the way, I'm going to have a major event myself on June 18th in St. Louis. There'll be more information on that coming, uh, but circle the calendar, June 18th at the Lindenwood University. And I'll be back in a moment with Mark Anthony as we talk about his work, Evidence of Eternity. Well, up next, we're going to talk about spirits in the afterlife, the psychic lawyer back with me, Mark Anthony, and he's next. By the way, his book is doing really well, Evidence of Eternity, when we uh, had him on uh, back, uh, well, about a year ago when we talked about that. So he'll be back with us in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast, and Mark Anthony with us, the psychic lawyer, also known as the psychic explorer author of Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity. He's a world-renowned fourth-generation psychic medium communicating with spirits. He's an Oxford-educated attorney licensed to practice law in Washington, D.C., Florida as well, and before the United States Supreme Court. Now, in England, he studied mediumship at the very prestigious Arthur Findlay College for the Advanced of psychic science and that alone that experience mark must have been amazing it was great george and and thank you for having me back on coast to coast that's always a pleasure and i don't know what came first for you the psychic or the attorney i think it might have been the psychic part of you yeah it was the psychic part because this runs in my family both my parents had these abilities and uh, in, in researching my family, it runs for generations on both sides. And, and that's, you know, one of the theories that I talk about in, in Evidence of Eternity and in Never Letting Go is that this appears to be a genetic trait. It, and, and, George, you know, we all have genetic traits. There's a reason sure. it looks like our parents. I mean, left-handedness runs in some families, certain, um, you know, physical and an intellectual aspects. So this is, this is one of them. And, you know, we're just now beginning to fully understand this or, you know, getting on the path to fully understanding it. Mark, did you use your psychic ability in your law practice? Yeah, I have to admit that I, I did. <laughs> but, you know, we all have a skill set. And some people, um, you know, they're, they're, they're better at certain things than others. But I found that uh, my intuitive ability, you know, because, um, you know, every medium is a psychic, uh, and, but not every psychic necessarily has mediumistic ability. But uh, with, with intuitive ability, I found that it was extremely useful during jury selection. Uh, to get an idea of what people were feeling. I've also uh, been consulted by a number of people on, on uh, uh, cold cases and helping them to understand you know, why somebody maybe took their own life or uh, you know, some aspects of, of a murder. So that, that's an ongoing thing. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've always uh, you know, relied upon and trusted, uh, trusted my feelings. You're known as 
the Psychic Lawyer. How did that title come about? <laughs> um, it, it kind of evolved. You know, it's funny when I when I see like in some articles she calls himself the Psychic Lawyer. Well, I didn't. Uh, I, I was doing interviews because I started uh, in earnest working with my ability. And when people and reporters found out that I was an attorney, uh, somebody said, well, this guy is the psychic lawyer, and it just sort of stuck. And then it's become part of my brand. So uh, it, it was kind of funny the way, the way it wasn't like I sat down and said, oh, let's do this or let's call me this. It's just sort of what happened. What, over the years now, Mark, what have you learned, what have you concluded about all this that's been happening. And of course, you put a lot of it into your book, Evidence of Eternity. But what did you conclude? What I've concluded, George, is that what we are able to perceive uh, in, in this life, which I call living in the material world, because you know we're material beings, is just a drop of water in the infinite existence of who and what we really are. And that we go through this lifetime um, encountering people and circumstances and situations, and some days are good and some days are bad, and some relationships are wonderful, and there's a lot of pain and suffering, but in the bigger scheme of things, all of these are for a greater purpose and a greater journey. So what I've found is that we're immortal, eternal beings, and we're on this, this journey, and um, that's really in, in the energetic and in the sense of our consciousness, we never die. No, we never do. Uh, one of our dear friends, William Henry, calls us light beings, and I understand Albert Einstein thought we were that too. Yes, yes, he did. And, you know, it's great because, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, because Einstein's back in the news now. Uh, um, about uh, Back in February, uh, scientists uh, announced that gravitational wave. That's right. They found them. <laughs> They found them, and Einstein theorized that 100 years ago, back in 1916, and uh, LIGO, the Large Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, picked up waves from two black holes, and uh, they're circling each other, and they collided, and so the scientific community, NASA and, and uh, the European Space Agency, the Russians, the Japanese, the China, everyone is just so excited about this, and... Uh, and it shows, once again, that, that Einstein was correct. But when Einstein was talking about we're all beings of light, that is so true in so many ways. And I know that, you know, we're going to be talking about the light of quantum consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, quantum physics, and a lot of people like to, you know, sling that term around. It is the study of quanta, which are discrete units of energy. And Einstein's one of the founding fathers of the field of quantum physics, and it comes down to this. As simple as I can make quantum physics. Right. <laughs> well, I've had Michio Kaku try to explain it, so we'll let you yeah, yeah, we'll, dive we'll, at it. We'll defer to him. <laughs> I, like, I like that commercial he's in when they say, uh, this, this costs nothing, and we are having him explain it. He goes, that means it's free. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but but um, the quantum physics is is the study that everything, energy, matter, everything in the universe is made up of electromagnetically charged particles. And that's why they call it particle physics, quantum physics, because 
the technical term for these particles is quanta, and that energy and matter behave both as particles and waves, and that everything in the universe vibrates. Um, one of the uh, uh, particle physicists at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, he's also a professor at the University of Notre Dame, or Notre Dame. Now, um, that's the one in Chicago? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Don Lincoln, uh, he said that uh, quantum mechanics tells us that electrons are both particles and waves, and you can never be certain what it will do. But but I like what he, he uh, said when he, he said that everything, he, he told me, he goes, and I mean everything, is just a consequence of many infinitely large vibrating fields. The entire universe is a vast field of a subatomic symphony, and everything is vibrating all the time. So when we get into quantum physics, we realize that everything is both um, matter and energy are all composed of the same particles or a lot of the same particles. So when Einstein was going um, by, by making that statement, we're all beings of light, what we found is that light is both particles and waves. So once again, Einstein was, was proved correct. And we now know um, from, from studies done all over the world uh, in, in the, the UK at Oxford and in Cambridge and the US at MIT and the University of Arizona at the Russian Institute, Japan and Germany, they believe that there is a stream of photons within the brain in other words, um, uh, light and wave and energy particles that possess a quantum field. And this is now taking a lot of people in a very fascinating direction, George, because we're starting to see a bridge now between the scientific and the spiritual. This very well may be the scientific basis for the existence of what a lot of people like to call the soul. Now, that could be amazing if we could truly scientifically discover the soul. That's but, you know, and it's one of the things I said in my first book, Never Letting Go, is that uh, the ultimate objective of science is the, the discovery of God, the discovery of an afterlife. And a lot of people have been saying that. And, and sadly, the scientific and the spiritual and the communities have, have traditionally been at odds. But with, with a lot of the people of faith beginning to be less dogmatic and rigid in their thinking, and a lot of the people in the science community being less dogmatic and rigid in their thinking, they're beginning to see that that uh, they're, they're, they're actually on the same page when it comes to the immortality of the energy that makes us alive. You know, they've called this universe very electric, and it seems like it is, and people like Einstein who were able to deduce this a uh, hundred years ago without the, you know, the benefit of a computer. You know, I sometimes think the guy was a time traveler, Mark. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's funny you say that because so many of his theories uh, dealt with uh, warps in time and space. And, and maybe he was, or maybe the fact that he had the type of intellect that could tune into the, this, this vibration, if you will, uh, that's going on. And that, that's a, a good way of, of putting it, George, because when I was studying uh, psychic and, and mediumistic phenomena, um, the quantum theorists, 
you know, starting with Einstein and, and going all the way up until until today, they talk about time being timeless. That you and I think there's a time because we look at clocks and we're born, we grow old, and then we die. And so we think that time actually exists, and, and our entire culture is built upon the fact that the Earth rotates on a 24-hour circle and then goes around the world, I mean, around the sun in 365 days a year. So we, we base this concept of time on that. But when you start looking at what the quantum theorists are saying is that everything that has happened will happen and uh, is happening is occurring simultaneously in the energetic sense. And the theory is that people who are psychic, and, and I'm not just going to limit it to people who are psychic. Uh, I think that everybody, particularly parents, you know, you have premonitions and feelings and, and, and uh, um, you have dreams which seem to be prophetic in nature. Everybody is capable of having this type of experience is what's actually happening is that their brainwave frequency is then aligning itself with this, and therefore you are able to glimpse events which you and I might call the future, but in the energetic sense is occurring parallel to what we are experiencing from a material world perspective. You have talked about the uh, pineal gland that it does uh, and has an effect on us. Tell me about that. The pineal gland is is a fascinating a fascinating part of our brain. It's a small, you know, pea-sized lima bean-sized uh, gland, and it is behind the center of the forehead. Now, for the people that are interested in yoga and particularly uh, folks that are acquainted with Buddhism and Hinduism, they talk about the chakras in your body and the um, so-called third eye chakra, which is in the middle of your forehead, um, is, is a few, few inches behind that is the location of the pineal gland. Now, the pineal gland has been studied extensively uh, since World War One. Uh, particularly in England, and more recently, not just in Britain, but in the U.S., Israel, France, and Germany. And recent discoveries have found that there are calcite and magnetite crystals within the pineal gland, and these generate an electromagnetic field. So, so what happens is the the pineal gland has what are known as piezoelectric properties. It sends out EM waves, electromagnetic waves. Long story short, we have a receiver, a transmitter um, in our, our brain. We have a form of a radio station within the brain. And the pineal gland goes even further than that. For such a small organ, it's extremely complicated. It controls our circadian rhythms. That's right. when we get up, we, you know, we, we do things during the day. It secretes the hormone melatonin, which regulates our sleep cycles. And it also governs our ability to perceive light. And uh, that ties into a lot of theories about the importance of light, not just in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense. So the pineal gland is believed to be the physiological apparatus that it allows everybody to have either a psychic or mediumistic experience because that's the gland that, that, that covers it. Now, people ask me all the time, well, you know, can everybody talk to spirits? Can everybody um, have a psychic experience? Well, everybody can swim, but 
not everyone can be Michael Phelps, everyone can do math, mm-hmm. and not everyone can be Stephen Hawking. You know, we can, you know, we, we all have varying abilities. Some people are just better at it than others. Well, that's true. There's no question about that. So let's get him back to light again. Are you saying that all our abilities, consciousness, um, life after death, communicating with the other side, is tied into this electrical universe we're in? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're just now beginning, beginning to see this. Um, when we talk about, talk about the pineal gland, um, okay, it, it, it governs our ability to perceive light. Every great spiritual teacher, from Krishna through Moses, through Buddha, through Jesus, I mean, all the way up into today, to, through Billy Graham, uh, through Mother Teresa, uh, through Yogananda, refers to God as the light. And then when you look at the near-death experience studies, and uh, I've worked uh, um, quite a bit with with people uh, with near-death experiences. I myself, having had one, my father's had two of them. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing the Spirit Symposium in Sedona, June 9th through the 11th, with Dr. Gary Schwartz. Ah, oh, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's awesome. I, I'm, I'm I'm so looking forward to working with him again. And we're we're putting on the Sedona Spirit Symposium. Um, to understand life in the uh, in the afterlife in the 21st century. And near-death experience uh, survivors or near-deathers, as they call them, this is when your consciousness separates from your body. In other words, you die, and then you come back to life. And the near-death experience people, myself included, um, encounter a light, and you will see people that you know who've died. Mm -hmm. And the light can only be described as this vast love, peace, intelligence as God. And um, I had a discussion um, when I was speaking at Edgar Casey Center, uh, and I'll be, be there in New York uh, actually next week. Um, we were, were discussing that even the word God is, is too limiting, is, is too limiting for this. Yeah, I mean, you know, God, we, we, we have all these anthropomorphic, these humanized versions of, you know, God being a, a human being or, or a human-like figure, and, and perhaps God is. But, but uh, for, for people who, who study this, is what we tend to do is be, when, when you are separating from your physical body, you're, you're still evaluating things, if you will, on the basis of our limited material world existence. And now you're encountering the ultimate infinity. I mean, we're, we're talking God. And so until you make the transition from a material world conscious viewpoint to an immortal conscious viewpoint, you tend to classify and recognize this entity, the, the, this infinity, uh, in human terms. Um, but everyone refers to this as light. So it appears that our ability to perceive the spiritual energy of God comes to us in the form of light. And that's why throughout the, the, the millennia, I mean, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Hindus, everybody referred to God as, as light. But it's, it's more fundamental uh, than that. When you look at it, George, our life on this planet requires light. And that's no woo-hoo theory. The fact of the matter is the earth 
Earth is positioned about the right distance from this, the star we call the sun. We're lucky. Without, yeah, yeah. Well, we're very lucky. I mean, you know, Venus is 800 degrees. Of course, and one could say it was designed this way. Yeah, I, and I tend, I tend to, to agree. Uh, in fact, I do agree. It was designed this way. We have to exist, um, and we exist because of light and photosynthesis. All, everything that we eat, that we consume, is a form of concentrated light. I mean, you know, plankton, plants, you know, uh, if you eat vegetables or you eat animals that eat vegetables, I mean, we're all consuming a form of light. And so light is, is for the planet's existence, for our own existence, from a psychological standpoint, uh, the people that live in, in darker latitudes. Hold on for a second, Mark. I, I want to ask you about biophotons uh, when we come back, and then we'll really get into quantum consciousness. Welcome back, Mark Anthony with us. And Mark, before we get into quantum consciousness, let's talk a little bit about biophotons. They seem to be in the news a lot lately. What are they? Biophotons are great. Um, you know, when, when Einstein said that we're all beings of light, um, and, and the spiritual uh, teachers and leaders talk about God being perceived as light, what we found is that our cells emit ultra-weak photon emissions, which are referred to as biophotons. Um, in other words, our cells talk to each other using flashes of light. Uh, think about it this way. If you drop a bowling ball on your foot, you immediately know that that hurts because you feel the pain. And this is, is um, scientists have been curious about how is it that, that that message gets from your foot to your brain so quickly, like instantaneously. We know it's not a chemical transfer. And in the 1920s, uh, Russian scientist Alexander Gerbich, he, he believed and theorized that there were biophotons which were proven uh, decades later in Germany by uh, Fritz Albert Pop, and then more recently, in, in once again in Russia, by Sergei uh, Mabrov. And what biophotons are is it's different than bioluminescence. Bioluminescence are things like fireflies and, and other um, creatures that emit external light. Biophotons are very, very low levels of light, and we know that light can transmit information and energy, once again tying into what Einstein and the quantum physicists talk about um, quanta, particles of energy, which compose everything. So now what we're finding in our body is that our cells appear to be more of a matrix that, that flashes back and forth. And, and I read something recently in a physics journal that an individual cell can emit 100,000 flashes of light per minute. So this is not some random thing. We are popping and, and uh, we, we are, are actually beings of light. And, you know, this really is not a, a far-fetched theory. Uh, the simple fact is is that life can't exist on Earth without light, okay? You know, I mean, it makes the plants grow, it makes our, our world not a frozen chunk of ice uh, orbiting around in space. So if our body is dependent on life, then it's logical that our body also emits light. So light is something that is both within you and without you. All right, let's move into quantum consciousness, of course, and you talk about real science dabbling with the unusual and the paranormal. That's right. That's what this is, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, quantum consciousness 
are are scientists all over the world. I mean, we're talking from you know uh, Oxford and, and Moscow and Paris and the United States. Uh, I mean, all, all over the place, Japan, that are talking about quantum consciousness. And um, Hans Peter Durer of the Max Planck Institute in Germany, I like like what he said, is that. Um, you know, we've got all these energy particles. I mean, we are energy particles. And that within our brain, which is a highly sophisticated organ, there's a lot of electrical activity going on there. And that our brain uh, has all of this uh, activity going on in uh, microtubules. And I'll get into that in a minute. But long story short, what... Uh, Dr. Durr and um, other professors, particularly Jeremy Hayward from Cambridge, what they're saying is that our brain seems to be a formatting instrument. In other words, it's a carbon-12 resonator floating in salt water. It's, it's an organ, a very sophisticated organ, but it does not create consciousness. It merely houses it. And you can look at our brain like a computer hard drive. Okay, the computer hard drive, it formats and it stores energy, but when the hard drive ceases to exist, think of the energy, uh, the quantum field within it being transferred to a thumb drive, and the thumb drive goes on. And we know that energy from the laws of physics is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. So as, as Dr. Durr said that, um, he said, when we die, the body or the hard drive is gone, but our consciousness, the data on the computer lives on. So in that way, we're immortal. And he's not alone in, in saying this, because there are a lot of physicists now who are saying that it may be a mistake to ban the understanding of the spirit from nature um, and, and that that we are on the verge of proving the existence of a soul as being a coherent and cohesive quantum field which is transferred from the physical body to, to another dimension. Mark, let's talk for a moment about the design. There's no way this could have been a fluke of nature. Something, some power, some entity had to put this all together uh, and plotted it out as good as anything you could ever imagine. Hey, George, I, I can't disagree with you there. Um, you know, is this just a fluke? Is this just a random accident? I mean, there's a lot of people, there's, there's the cynics, in a, and there's people who claim to be skeptics who say, oh, no, you know, this is just a random thing. But it, it's, it's, it's too perfect. And... It appears that, uh, you know, I, I believe in intelligent design. I believe in God. Do I believe God is a white guy on a throne with a scepter smiting people? No. Um, but I believe that, that God is energy, intelligence, love, and that we're all interconnected energetically. Now, you can say, oh, well, that's just some woohoo, airy fairy theory, but then you've got quantum physics, which is saying exactly that, that all matter, all energy are, are composed of subatomic particles that have a lot more in common with each other than they do differences. Okay, so let's look a little bit about the incredible abilities of Edgar Cayce. You just mentioned him. 
he was able to do all kinds of things in his trance state. Yes, yes. Edgar, Edgar Casey. Um, there's three different types of mediums. There's mental mediums. That, that's like me, where I receive images that are transferred to me and they appear in my mind's eye, my mind's ear. Then there's physical mediums. That's a different, you know, who are you know theoretically supposed to be able to project um, ectoplasm. Uh, but then there's people like Edgar Casey who are. In, in the UK, we refer, refer to them as trans mediums. Here in the United States, we call them channelers. And what happens is a spiritual entity or entities temporarily takes use of their body. Now, I know some people, oh, it's possession. It's not possession because um, the host medium is aware of what's going on. And these are good entities that take possession. Okay. Yeah, these are, these are yeah. <laughs> well, we'll say temporarily. We'll call it leases them. Um, <laughs> but... Um, um, Edgar Casey, uh, in fact, the Edgar Casey um, Association for Research and Enlightenment is uh, a nationwide, worldwide organization. They have several branches, one in Virginia Beach, which I, I spoke at, and then one um, in New York City, which I'll be speaking at uh, next week. Um, both, um, it's just on my website, evidenceofeternity.com. Uh, I'll be speaking. Um, a week from th uh, Friday and Saturday. That's your New York tour, right? That's my New York tour. I'll be speaking at Columbia University Bookstore on um, April 6th. So I'm looking forward to that. Columbia invited me to speak there. Now, Edgar Casey received so much information of a medical, a spiritual, a prophetic nature that he was documented for, for years. Uh, thousands and thousands of readings that he did. And a lot of the information that came through was about God. And in getting to Einstein's statement that we're all beings of light, and now what we have quantum physicists saying that um, that uh, we have a quantum field within us, and medical scientists proving that we have biophotons. And Edgar Casey, in one of his readings, he said that electricity or vibration, and, and actually he didn't say this, this came through him in, in a trance state. Energy or vibration is that same energy, the same power you call God. Not that God is an electric light or an electric machine, but vibration that is creative is of the same energy as life itself. This is pretty, pretty amazing because sure what, was coming, yeah, what was coming through Edgar Casey at a time when quantum vibrations were merely a theory as opposed to a fact. I mean, he died in the late 1940s, and this was coming through in the 30s. Einstein proposing his theories, you know, 10 to 15 years before this, and now that we're seeing that what came through Edgar Cayce about electrical and energetic vibration, which is God. Now, this opens a door, George, and of course, coast to coast is the absolute perfect place for this question. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. if energy is everywhere, and energy can transmit information and intelligence, then wouldn't that mean God is everywhere? Because if God is energy and everything, whether it's a frozen lump of ice beyond the orbit of Pluto to you and I to the radio waves uh, that this is being transmitted on are all um, utilizing or composed of energetically charged particles, 
then this would explain how God is a multidimensional intelligence that transcends all space and time. And, uh, you know, this is something that that uh, the great religious and spiritual leaders for centuries have been saying. This is what um, Edgar Cayce transmitted to us. This is what the quantum physicists are theorizing. And it's all there. And we are now just beginning to be able to put all of this together. So let us bring in, of course, the thoughts of humans as multidimensional beings. This ability to be able to do incredible things from the other side. How does that happen? Well, this is is a fascinating um, field um, of study. In my book, Evidence of Eternity, um, I I introduce a number of concepts. One of them is frequency beacons, and it's like you know people that are parents. So let's get away from from the the psychic woohoo stuff, you know, or so, as some people call it. Um, to me, it's just you know every day. <laughs> but mm. but uh, um, parents, let's say something terrible happens to one of your children, and all of a sudden you just know it. I mean, it doesn't mean that you know they they were killed or something, but maybe you know your your child was hurt or injured or or you know. Something happened, and you just know it. And you think that's a fluke? And, you know, parents have such a, an incredible emotional bond with a child, and love is a form of energy, so there's an energetic link. And what I explain in Evidence of Eternity is that we're all energetically interconnected. Think of a three-dimensional spider web, and that um, each strand of the web is a connection with a person that we love, both on this side of existence and on the other side. And it's, it's how when... When, let's say, you're, you're grieving very heavily and you're thinking about somebody who's died, you're sending an energetic vibration uh, out and, and the spirit picks up on that. Uh, similarly, let's say you're driving down the road and you turn on the radio um, and there's a song that makes you think of, of that particular loved one. Well, spirits are able to emit these frequency beacons to us as well. When we start looking at this on the quantum level, what we're seeing is that electrons, um, and this has been observed in, in laboratories and, and, and been uh, created in laboratory conditions and observed, electrons, they're energy, they're, they're part, um, a component of an atom, and they disappear, and then the same electron will reappear in a different place, let's say, you know, in your brain. But the electron is not crossing or, or traversing or going through the, um, the, the matter. In other words, it's appearing in one spot, uh, disappearing in one spot, reappearing in another, but not going through the matter in between. And physicists are wondering, well, where is it going? And the theory is that it is going to a different dimension, okay? And... This is what's known as a quantum leap. Now, we all remember the show with Scott Bakula, Quantum Leap. I mean, I loved it. Okay? It was a great show. Yeah, it was a great show. And a quantum leap, he was jumping from one time to another time and into a different body and so on and so, so forth. And a physicist and, and author, Evan Harris Walker, theorized that electrons are going into some other dimension. So this means that our, our brain may be physical, but our consciousness is not, and that we're only half there at any one time. So in the physical sense, uh, the electrons that make us, um, and that, that, that are, are 
world to somewhere else and then back again. So when our quantum field, our consciousness, is no longer burdened by the restraints of a material world existence, it is transferring to another dimension. Now, we've been hearing things like this from years out of spiritual leaders, that we are actually multidimensional beings and that our higher self, our higher state of consciousness is actually patched into, you know, you know, heaven or connected to the God force. And this very well may be uh, the beginning of an explanation of how we literally are all cells in the body of God. We're all light beings. We're all interconnected energetically. So, so from that standpoint, we're, we're multidimensional beings. But we're also seeing that um, our consciousness and our brain can actually uh, be little mini multiverses, if, if you will. So not only are there several dimensions around us, we ourselves are part of that. So it, it certainly makes for interesting discussion. When you try to communicate with the other side, what are we tapping into to do that? What it appears is that the pineal gland in our brain is altering brainwave frequency. And the thought is that, you know, and, and certainly when you get brain mapped, and I've been studied and just um, it's always fun when you to go with electrodes on your head and all that. But, <laughs> I mean, just be careful who puts the electrodes on you. Yeah, I know, I know. It's like, you know, it's like, God, I hope they're nice guys. Um, but what happens is we go from the, the beta state. That, that's the conscious aware state, the one that gets us up in the morning so we can write checks and go to work. We go from the beta state, then we uh, transition when we go to sleep to alpha, and then to deeper sleep is theta. And then there's another level, delta, which is like, you know, your, your brainwave functioning is like not happening at all. Um, and the theory is that on the alpha-theta border is conducive to psychic activity. That's why it's like when, when people that are doing psychic or mediumistic readings, uh, they kind of are in this daydreamy type state. You see a lot of mediums describe the feeling as, well, it's like being in a conscious daydream because that's what it actually is. So what's happening there? is that the brainwave frequency is elevating to this point to tap into a different dimension. Let's make it easy. Um, let's say we're looking at an FM radio dial and we live in, in um, 88.5 on the FM radio, radio dial and we're elevating our brainwave frequency to 101.3. Meanwhile, the other side, spirits are 107.9. They're bringing their frequency down to 101.3 to get a frequency match. Um, it's also maybe the difference between AM and FM. We live in AM radio. The other side is FM radio, and occasionally the two overlap. And that's why a lot of people say, well, why don't spirits just tell you this one? Why don't they tell you that? Because it's not texting or instant messaging. This is why um, I've redefined the term mediumship to interdimensional communication, because that's what we're doing. This is the material world reaching out and, and communicating with another dimension. So mediumship or communicating with spirits is actually interdimensional communication. Stay with us as we come back and take calls with Mark Anthony next on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, this hour, as we continue talking with our guest, Mark Anthony, we'll take your phone calls as well here on Coast to Coast AM. 
And welcome back to Coast to Coast, our guest, Mark Anthony. Mark, what do you think the other side is? Is it energy? Is it consciousness? What is it? Uh, I think energy and consciousness are intertwined, so I think it's both. Um, you know, somebody uh, emailed me the other day, and I get a lot of emails like this, is heaven a place where they have, like, tables and chairs and restaurants? And you hear a lot of mediums say that, oh, as above, so below. Um, I think what spirits do, let, let's say that you're doing a session, and, and I did a reading one time where um, this this mother and father came through for the person, and the father showed, like, horseback riding in, in what looked like Montana, and the mother showed a vineyard in Napa. And the client said, well, gee, my father's favorite thing to do is to go horseback riding, and my mother's favorite place in the world was Napa Valley. Now, I don't believe the spirits were actually horseback riding and hanging out at a vineyard. What they're doing is they're projecting to, to you and I something we can relate to. Because, George, you and I cannot understand what it's like to live in a purely energetic state because we're currently existing in a material world state. So I think that heaven is, is kind of beyond our limited comprehension. Uh, I like what Einstein said. Uh, about the afterlife and, and about uh, and about God. He said it's like a, a four-year-old child walking into a library full of books, and the child knows that somebody wrote the books and that there's something in them, but doesn't know who wrote them or how they got there or, or how to decipher them. So understanding that something exists doesn't necessarily mean understanding everything. And he came down to saying, that, it seems to me, is the attitude of the human mind, even in the greatest and most culture toward God. We see a marvelously arranged universe obeying certain laws, but laws we only understand dimly. I like that. Yeah, he, uh, he was so far ahead of his time in, in so many ways. And, you know, there's a big debate whether or not he believed in God. He, he didn't believe in a God that sat there and, and doled out punishments and smited people and all that. He looked at God more as what you were um, referring to as, as a consciousness and as an energy. And, and that appears to be, to be what, what it is. And, and when, when we were talking earlier about biophotons and the light which is within us, you know, one of one of the the most well, everything Jesus said was profound as far as I'm concerned. Um, but when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God is within, well, you have light within us. We perceive God as the light, the light of understanding, the light of truth. When people are enlightened, that's because they're gaining a deeper and more profound understanding of something greater than themselves. And um, I I believe in the concept of enlightenment. And in I N lightened is understanding the internal light, the connection of God, which is within us all. Um, and and you know, George, we see a lot of people around the world committing horrific acts and oh all that into politics. Out of control. That. It's out of control, and, and so many people are doing this in the name of God and, and all of that. The fact of the matter is, God does not create anger, bigotry, hatred, judgment, or violence. That's the ego. That's where you edge God out. And the fact of the matter is, the light of God, the understanding, the love, the energy is a pure and, and unpollutable thing. The, however, the choice we have 
is whether or not we're going to block our perception of the light. So while the light of God is within us and without us, it is our choice whether or not to block it. Because the people that do all these types of things are doing it out of ego, out of their own personal um, anger and judgmental and, and hatred-driven agendas, as opposed to love not only for yourself, but more importantly for those around you. Let's take some calls here for you, Mark. As they line up, we'll go to Jackie in Minneapolis to get things started. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Um, I have been totally blind for 11 years. I have terminal cancer, and I just changed oncologist. Was that a good move? Well, I'm, I'm not really a, a fortune teller, Jackie, but let me ask you this. Do you feel good with this new doctor? Very good. Then Very good. that is where you need to trust your feelings. And I'm not, not trying to pass the buck and, or sound Yoda-esque, okay? But, but we, all have, we all have abilities within us, and if you feel better, more comfortable with this doctor, and that resonates with you and brings you inner peace and a sense of satisfaction, then you've done the right thing. Because, you know, nothing's worse than when, when you have all types of medical problems and you go into an environment where people are poking and prodding you and treating you like an experiment as opposed to a living, breathing, sensitive human being. And when you can get a competent and caring physician that is not only really good at what they're doing, but to make you feel that you're in the hands of a healer, then you're doing the right thing, Jack. Mark, this advice uh, that you give people, uh, it's more like the psychic lawyer is back again. <laughs> well, you know, um, being, being an attorney, um, I, I had to rely upon my intuition, and a lot of people that came to me what I found, George, and and, uh, and this is something that I that, that that I write about in both of my books, and something that uh, that I'll be talking about at the Sedona Spirit Symposium in June, is that grief leads to crime, which leads to grief. And what I found in my practice as an attorney and as a psychic medium is that a lot of people that engage in criminal behaviors and that are drug addicts, alcoholics, um, predatorial behaviors. In their early years, there was a death. There was an unresolved uh, uh, loss, and they didn't deal with it through grief counseling or supportive family, and they're left to their own devices, which all too often turn to drugs and alcohol and, and uh, anger and rage. And so that grief can then lead someone down the path to engaging in behaviors like getting behind the wheel of a car when, you know, you've had too much to drink and then you kill somebody else. So your grief leads to crime, which then leads to, to grief, and it's a terrible cycle. And so what I saw in my practice is not only to represent people in, in, you know, in court, but also to get them into the proper counseling. Um, I see this a lot with, I have a lot of uh, military personnel come to me for readings, um, if guys that are suffering from post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, from, you know, being in combat and losing, uh, you know, their comrades, you know, guys that they loved as brothers. And, and it's very important for them to, to come to terms with these, with these 
abilities of both a medium and an attorney can intersect to help people, then, uh, you know, I pray to God that I'm, I'm doing my job right. Well, and, uh, and you are. Now, what happens in 10 years from now? How will science try to get better answers for us about what this is on the other side? Uh, that, excellent question. Uh, that's excellent. Um, well, our, our science is never stagnant. You know, I, I see a lot of the skeptics go, there is no proof for this. It's like, yeah, but what was, what were the stars before the invention of the telescope? People had these bizarre ideas that there were holes in the fabric of heaven and they were this and that and the other thing. And then the telescopes invented and we're saying, oh, wow. Or what was disease before the invention of the microscope? I mean, when the train was invented, there were, there were actually scientists who thought that the train would move so quickly, it would suck all the oxygen out, create a vacuum, and kill everybody on board. And, oh, my God, you know, that was scientific fact, and then they found out that, that it wasn't. So our science is always evolving. We're getting more and more sophisticated technology. We're, you know, we're able to, to uh, notice electrons disappearing and then reappearing, uh, possibly going to another dimension. There's just been the discovery of gravitational waves. We, I think the 21st century, provided we don't blow ourselves into the other side <laughs> with that technology, um, is going to be one of great discovery. We're going to see uh, discoveries both without and within on the vibrational level and with uh, genetic therapies of the regeneration of cells, once again using energy, and also the quantum physicist being able to better understand what happens to the quantum field in our brain when it leaves the physical body at physical death. Next up, we've got Dr. Sleepless in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Doc. Hello, George. Hello, Mark. Anthony, you're asking all the right questions. It's so fantastic. But I wanted to see, I believe that uh, we've confirmed that consciousness does not originate in the brain. But uh, therefore, my question is, what would be the conductor of consciousness? Could it possibly be the water? Since water reacts to everything and has sacred geometry in it, and stores information and has memory. Dr. Sleepless, I cannot thank you enough for that question. <laughs> um, the medical and the scientific community have been split uh, over what is consciousness, as have the spiritual community. And the, I'm going to stick with medical and scientific right now. There's three schools of thought. Number one, consciousness is the result of evolution over millions of years. The brain and nervous system underwent complex and sophisticated physical changes resulting in self-awareness. And that's nice, okay? Then number two, consciousness is not a physical action and is not controlled by physical laws. As such, it has always existed. Woohoo! Now, this is the interesting one because it means consciousness exists without a material host. In other words, a body so that means that the soul, if you will, pre-exists the body. And then the third possibility is that consciousness is the result of physical events which have always existed but are not yet understood, which could be uh, the, the so-called quantum field. So your question about water, water is, is definitely um, a key to this because, um, because water is a huge conductor of electrical activity. And water is also composed of quanta, which are energetically charged particles. So I think we're all on the same page here. It's just 
we don't quite know yet, but because we don't quite know yet, doesn't mean it, ha it doesn't exist. I mean, look at what, what George uh, brought up earlier is the discovery of gravitational waves. I mean, Einstein said that they existed in 1916, and it wasn't until uh, 2015, 2016 that we proved it. So just because we can't prove it right now doesn't mean it isn't, isn't a reality. Why are some people more tuned in than others? Tuned in in, in what, in the, the psychic sense? Yes. I think it's like, why are some people more athletic than others? Why are some more musical than others and, and uh, mathematical? Um, it may have to do with the pineal gland. Maybe some people's pineal glands are a little bit more developed or maybe, you know, people like, you know, that, that are psychics and mediums have an extra calcite or magnetite crystal in, in their brain. Um, uh, I, I remember reading a uh, article on neurobiology that people that are highly spiritual, their brains seem to be wired a little bit differently. But we also know that highly intelligent people's brains are wired differently uh, because the axons in the brain, which are, are the wiring of the brain, um, you know, there, there may be more electrical activity or, or more, you know, more uh, quantum vibrations going on in some brains than others. So I think it all comes down to we're all good at different things, and and the, that again ties into what you were asking, George, about intelligent design. If God, if the creative force wanted us to all be the same, then we'd be like a school of fish. Yeah. We'd all react to light and heat and and uh, predators and stimuli the same way, but we're not. We're we're all very different. Let's go to Gary in Santa Maria, California. Gary, go ahead. Oh, thank you, George. Sure thing. I'm going to give this my best shot here. Um, I uh, lost my uh, dog of uh, 17 years, 16 years. On the 18th, I was going to call in on open lines. He started taking a turn for the worse around Christmas, but I wasn't premature and and uh, taking care of him. But that night, the whole show seemed to be uh, geared to dogs. It started off with Barry McGuire that quoted his uh, mother and said, uh, the poor dog uh, doesn't wag his own tail. And he passed uh, right after, uh, well, Cornelius called in and uh, that uh, you played Louis Armstrong's uh, What a Wonderful World. Yeah. And then uh, Tommy took over the phones that night. That was and, his birthday present. Yeah, and uh, uh, one had a birthday and the other one passes. I took a bath uh, with my with my bird dog. He was a, uh, an, uh, an English pointer. His best friend was a blue jay that he found as a fledgling, um, and uh, and uh, we had the blue jay for almost 12 years before he expired. So, I, in every way, he was a true bird dog. But you played; it was only 15 or 20 seconds, literally, after he took his last breath, that Tommy, right before he came on put on the song uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Brother Is. Now, there was very few ways of consoling me 
that night, but between passing between the first song, What a Wonderful World, and then Somewhere Over the Rainbow Where Bluebirds Fly by Brother Is, I really got and having a warm bath with him as he slowly passed. Um, was just about the biggest send-off there was. Then I had a, uh, a slightly visitation dream where I saw his speckled nose come through two long drapes, and later that morning I had made, for St. Patrick's Day, a, uh, a corned beef steak that ended up to be corned beef, beef jerky that I had shared with him the night before. And because um, I wouldn't dare give it to anybody else. It was full of flavor. How old was he? How long did you have him, Gary? Uh, he was almost 17 years old. Wow. That, that's, that's, that's a long, long time. And, you know, in terms of the music that, that we select, it's, it's, it's for the mood. And it uh, touched you in that uh, certain way. And uh, I'm thankful that we were a little part of that. Uh, to be sure, it works. Things work in magical ways, Mark Anthony. Yes, they do. And and you know, I, for for the caller, um, any being capable of the emotion of love is capable of spirit communication. And I'm a firm believer because I've done probably ten thousand plus readings in my life. Animals come through a lot of the time, so. Don't despair because at when it is your appointed time to transition to the other side. I'm no way encouraging anyone to to speed that along. Well, let's take as much time as we can before yeah, we I mean, do. We're all going to get there. What's the rush? <laughs> you know, um, and we are. We will see these beings again. Yeah, we're we're all we're all going to transition. And you know, I'll tell you, it's it. And I, I write about that in Evidence of Eternity is uh, communication with animals on the other side. Uh, which is a very, very um, important thing because animals, I mean, what's, what's a life without our, our four-legged friends? You know, it's just like you know, one of my best buddies growing up was my dog. <laughs> so so uh, it's very comforting to know. Man, man's best friend, as they say, Mark, we're going to come back and take final calls with you in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. Okay, welcome back to Coast to Coast, our final segment with the psychic lawyer, Mark Anthony, in your calls. Mark, in the, your work as a uh, studying mediums and mediumship, what is that ability of a medium to tap into the other side? What are they doing? What we're doing is, is we're raising our vibrational frequency to where we tune into an ultra-higher uh, frequency. And as quantum physics physics is teaching us everything in the universe has vibrations that vibrates at higher um, levels. For example, AM radio um, vibrates at one, one level, FM radio vibrates at another, XM radio, uh, so on and so forth. And so what we're doing is we're aligning our brainwave frequency with a higher frequency and we're tapping into the quantum field of of, of the um, of discarnate intelligence. In other words, we're communicating with souls. And what I've seen, George, is that the other side is a collective consciousness. 
and that when we separate from our body, our quantum field, our soul, is like a drop of water which then plunges into this vast, infinite ocean, yet we retain our individuality. That's God's gift to all of us, is our individuality, and we can disconnect from that. That's why I call it the disconnect. And, and um, these are some of the things, George, that I'm going to be discussing at the uh, Sedona Spirit Symposium which is in June, and on the Mystical Mayan Cruise. I've started um, an adventure uh, tour uh, to spiritual locations throughout the world. I've got the Mystical Mayan Cruise from Florida uh, aboard the uh, Royal Princess, one of the finest, most beautiful new ships in the Princess fleet. And for folks to find out more about that, just go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, and also on the Coast to Coast site, if you go to um, um, the information about me on Coast to Coast, because I'm going to be talking quite a bit about the science of spirit communication at both the uh, Sedona Spirit Symposium and on the Mayan, uh, Mystical Mayan Tour. All right, let's go to Jimmy, first-time caller in the state of Maine. Hi, Jimmy. Go ahead. Hey, George. How you doing? Uh, Good, started listening to your show last week. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan, actually. It's, it's a true show. Um, Thank you. Uh, I was talking to the call because I was listening to Mark talk about uh, his description, um, his belief on God, how he's not like a great bearded guy sitting in the sky, and he's just like energy, which is kind of how I describe it to people when I explain my opinion of mm-hmm. God and how affected. My question uh, for you, Mark, is what do you think, or how do you think deja vu um, pertains to the energy segment that you're talking about? Like, when someone has uh, deja vu, is that part of the same energy spectrum that you're referring to? Like, how, how, what do you think of that? And I can take yeah, my, uh, my answer off there. Okay. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Jimmy, fantastic question. Um, when I was talking about a medium tuning into an ultra-high frequency of the other side, because we're communicating with spirits, a psychic ability, okay, psychic ability is when you tune into the energy of a person, place, or thing, and you can discern past, present, and future events. Um, very, very similar, because according to the quantum theorists, time has no time, so that everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen is energetically going on simultaneously. And you, as you correctly are identifying a deja vu experience, is tapping into that. I mean, how many times you know, have we had a dream uh, of something and then the next day or a week later or whenever, you say, wait, I had a dream about that. Or you got the feeling that you had done this before or you received some type of premonition. And the theory is that that's exactly what's going on, is that you're tapping into this quantum field, if you will, that is giving you glimpses of what we deem to be future events. These other realities that are out there, do you think it is uh, also in other dimensions? You know, I, I, I would like to think so. Um, you know, we've all... Because that's a strange one. Yeah, that is a strange one. I always got a kick out of, uh, uh, okay, I guess I'll admit on, on world radio that I, I like Star Trek, but they would have those episodes where they'd cross over to the alternate dimension and they're all very different and all that. It has to say, who's to say, but, but from the perspective that, that I work with, um, there is definitely, or there are definitely uh, several dimensions, 
And if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, you've got FM, AM, XM, gamma rays, ultraviolet rays. I mean, what we can perceive with the naked eye is like a, a piece of dental floss, okay? And you lay that piece of dental floss on a yardstick, and the yardstick is the electromagnetic spectrum. And we can only see one tiny strand of it. And now with the discovery of, of dark matter and dark energy, um, at best, we can only perceive, even with our current technology, 5% of the universe. So, yeah, there's definitely uh, a, lot of, a lot of multiverses, a lot of uh, dimensions out there. Let's go to Joe in the Bronx on our wild card line. Joe, go ahead. Hey, George, how are you? Uh, I wanted to ask Mark Anthony, um, you mentioned earlier that we're all interconnected, um, that uh, we also connect to God. Um, each of us has trillions of cells in our body. Um, could we also each represent a cell in God's body? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I believe that, yes. That, that's what, when we were talking earlier about biophotons, which are the particles of light and how our cells communicate with each other by flashing um, light to each other, um, if God is perceived as light and light is within us and our body emits light, then that same energy, we're all interconnected. Now, where, where people or where humanity uh, screws things up is when we start blocking, blocking that light and not listening uh, to to the higher messages, which is you know, basically love and peace and understanding. When you wrote Evidence of Eternity, uh, and we talked about it a year ago, it uh, still has some legs. How's it doing now? Well, I I've, um, understand it's been submitted for a Pulitzer Prize. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, it's funny when I got the wow. notification, I was, I was, uh, you know, I had to call Columbia University to make sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, which of my friends? Somebody's not pulling a gag yeah, on somebody, you. And they said no, and and uh, so it's, it's uh, up for a Pulitzer Prize, been submitted for a Pulitzer. Congratulations, Mark. Thank that's, you. That's and, a great honor. Still, I appreciate that, George. And it's still holding uh, bestseller status um, um, in in three different categories, uh, definitely in Kindle and. And uh, in print uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and so it's done very, very well. And uh, it's now in Polish. It's going to be in Slovak, French, um, Lithuanian, and um, I got a list of, of a couple other languages. And my publisher is negotiating with some Spanish publishers as well. So it appears that uh, Evidence of Eternity, the journey of that book, has just begun. Did you ever expect it to be that wildly successful? Uh, every author, you know, when you put your heart and soul into into your work, you, you want it to be. But I'm also a realist, and um, you know, I, I I put forth my best effort, and uh, thank God every day for for uh, for the work that I'm doing and and how well Evidence of Eternity is doing. Mike in Ohio, welcome to the show, Mike. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, George. Good morning, Mark. I still get a little nervous, so hopefully I can get this big question in. Um, Mark, um, I was wondering if you know of any research or would you suggest any that would have a correlation between, say, you know, you talk about the penile gland and uh, that being, you know, the godlight of your chakra. 
Now, what about people that have had, say, a negative near-death experience or, say, a person that has had, like you, has had a positive near-death experience? Like, how does that correlate as far as, uh, say, like, if a person physically, if their pain out of land was, say, damaged as a child, maybe they had a uh, negative near-death experience, or, say, your uh, pain out of land is larger because of your genealogy and your DNA, and you, you had a positive near-death experience, and then also, how would that correlate, say, with, like, uh, returning Iraqi war veterans that, say, they suck energy from their penile gland to uh, kind of counteract the emotional or physical damage that they had? Um, and then maybe with Dr. Wallach, if he would suggest a, a, a nutrients that would flood the brain to get those electrons back working again and try to balance out, you know, your chakras of your, your, your gut, you know, your light center. Uh, a lot of a lot of information, but thank you very much, Mark, and thank you, George. Thank now, you, Mike. We could we could do a whole show. Uh, George and I could do a whole show on your question. I think it's great. Uh, there's a lot of studies going on all over the world right now with the pineal gland, and you know, damage to the brain. We have to realize that the brain hosts consciousness. It doesn't create consciousness. And uh, Dr. Uh, Stuart Hameroff and um, um, Dr. Penrose from Oxford um, are explaining brain functioning as occurring in the microtubules in our brain. Long story short, each cell has a structure to it, and there's this uh, structure called a microtubule, so it looks like a tube, and quantum vibrations occur there. And the think of your brain and think of your cells as an orchestra. And all of a sudden, these quantum vibrations go off, they're orchestrated, and then they stop at given times, just like music. Impulses of sound and vibration start and then stop at strategic times, and they call that orc-or, orchestrated to objective reduction. And it is those processes which appear to create decisions and moods and feelings, in other words, consciousness. And this is a quantum field which is going on within the brain and can exist whether or not that carbon-12 resonator in the, in floating in salt water, in other words, your brain, um, has functioned or is damaged uh, one way or the other. So we are much more than what our body is, and the brain is merely the hard drive, but the information stored on the hard drive will go on after the hard drive no longer functions. Mark, do you get uh, incensed with uh, mediums who are faking it? Well, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, I mean, there, there's people that criticize me and criticize, you know, this one and that one. Um, there are charlatans out there. And I think that before, you know, people go to a medium, you know, check their reputation, see if you know anyone that's been to them. And any psychic or medium that starts telling you that you have to come on a regular basis or that your, your aura is haunted and, and uh, there's a curse on you and things like that, then those are the people who are not acting from a genuine state. Right. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, to be avoided. And what about the medium who does it for free? That, that to me, increases one's credibility. Um, well, yes, and, and, you know, we all do, you know, I, I certainly do, um, do a lot of readings uh, for free and for charity, but never for anyone that asks 
for one, mm-hmm. or demands it of me, uh, or insults me, okay? <laughs> um, because um, you know everybody wants something for nothing, and you know Edgar Casey did everything uh, for free, but then again he he died penniless, and his wife and he that was a bone of contention that right. they had throughout their marriage is like you know why aren't you charging? Um, you know, but the fact of the matter is, as much as we'd all like to join in, sing kumbaya, and let everything be free as we slide down a rainbow on our unicorn, um, you know, gasoline costs money, but that's a gift from God because the oil that creates it comes from the earth. Plants are a gift from God, but, you know, farmers don't work for free. Um, you know, what my auto mechanic does is a gift from God, but he doesn't work for free. And the fact of the matter is, um, you know, we have to be practical about things. And also, you know, we get what we pay for. You know, if you go into a, a Mercedes dealership and whine and complain that uh, that Mercedes should cost the same as, as a Yugo, um, you know, not going to happen. Yeah, not going to happen. Chris, British Columbia, Canada. Go ahead, Chris. Let's squeeze you in here. Hello. I just, um, I'm a first-time caller, but I couldn't get onto that line. Aren't Anyways, okay. um, I wanted to talk about how the universe is not separate from us because just how you are talking to me, I am a fragment of the universe just like how you are a fragment of the universe. So a lot of people think that they're separated from, you know, God, which God is the entirety of all of existence. We are just a mere reflection of life reflecting itself within the universe. And if there wasn't any life in the universe, there wouldn't really be a purpose for rocks and stars Mm -hmm. flying around the universe and all that. Well said. Let's get your reaction. 30 seconds left. Go ahead. I, I couldn't have said it better myself because when we look at the universe on a quantum level, we're all composed of energetic particles all the way from the biophotons in our cells to the great infinite consciousness and light that is God. Indeed. Mark, thank you. Uh, keep in touch with us and uh, good luck. And on your website, have uh, all your events are listed. Yes, on evidenceofeternity.com. I got the uh, New York City tour, Columbia University, and Edgar Casey Center next week, the Sedona Spirit Symposium in June, and the Psychic Explorer Mystical Mayan Cruise, which is going to be fantastic coming up in October. And that's all can be found on evidenceofeternity.com. Super. Have some fun. Thank you, Mark. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Bonehood, Sean Lavasseur, Stephanie Smith, Chris Bowles, and George Knapp. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, from the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie, and welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Later on tonight, Evidence of Eternity. Make sure you're around for that part of the program. And by the way, I trust those of you who celebrate Easter and Passover had a great time. Here's what's happening. A volcano on Alaska's Aleutian Islands erupted Sunday afternoon, sending ash some 20,000 feet into the air. The U.S. Geological Survey reported that the Pavlov volcano is located about 600 miles southwest of Anchorage. The agency says the volcano, which is about 4.4 miles in diameter, has had 40 known eruptions and is one of the most consistently active volcanoes in the Aleutian arc. Is it a danger? Let's check in with renowned environmental consultant, Dr. Tim Ball. Tim, is this serious or not, this volcano? Well, no, it's really not uh, at the present time. It's, it's part of the 
uh, most active volcanic chain in the world, the Aleutian Islands. But um, and and uh, it could have a, an effect upon the global temperatures in this way. It's um it's erupting quite vertically into the strat lower stratosphere, and when the dust gets up into the lower stratosphere, mixes with the water, becomes uh, like yellow droplets, and tends to reduce the amount of sunlight. And um, that's a factor. But um, because the air, it, it's winter time, and the the um, stratosphere is actually much lower at this time of year. That's why this dust is getting up there at that altitude. So the combination of that, but it also adds to what's called the dust veil index, which is the general level of dust, uh, volcanic dust in the atmosphere at any given time. And um, it will it uh, will add to the reduction of sunlight very slightly. The other thing that concerns me, Tim, is the possibility of severe earthquakes along the western side of the United States. What do you hear these days? Well, it, um, it's actually been relatively quiet. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that the more earthquakes you have, uh, the small ones, the better. Because that means that the plates are moving by each other. And it's when the plates get locked up, that is, these crusts of the earth that uh, lock together. And, and they, but they, they, the movement keeps going, but they're not, they're, not, they're not moving. And then they suddenly jump. And, of course, that's what you're looking at with San Francisco. But the, um, the, the level of, of volcanic activity or earthquake activity uh, in the, around this great ring of fire has been relatively uh, within normal ranges. And, as I say, lot, lots of, um, of earthquakes are, are a good thing. It's when they don't occur. That's when you've got to start worrying. Okay, Tim. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Tim Ball. Easter, Pakistan. Islamist militants in Punjab, the country's richest and most populous province, an Easter Day bombing, killing 70 people, injuring 300, many of them women and children, Christians simply wanting to celebrate Easter in Pakistan. ISIS, by the way, has apparently killed an Indian Catholic priest, kidnapped in Yemen earlier this month. They say he's been crucified, and they're also saying...
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.